When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and this week I am dedicating the lesson to all of you COVID return missionaries out there. I'm meeting more and more of you in my classes at BYU, and I'm amazed at hearing your stories. That you get called in one to one place, and you go out and start serving, and then all of a sudden COVID comes and cuts everything short. And there are continental quarantines in some parts of the world, and you are brought back home, sometimes miracles uh, even to be able to get back, and then readjusting to home life, and then readjusting a second time to some new mission field when you got called, when, when your assignment was changed. Then to readjust a, th a third time uh, when, when you head back out to the mission field that you were originally called to, or maybe not, you, you're still in the place that you got called the second time. I mean, so many things were up in the air during those years. There are some professions where you get hazard pay. The work is so dangerous that they, it's a bonus just for coming, showing up to work at all. Well, if that's true of certain professions, I think it's true of certain callings too. And you COVID return missionaries, you deserve some hazard blessings, time and a half <laughs> across the board because of what you faced. You couldn't do the norm. And so what are you going to do? Well, I may be bound, but the word is not bound. And so I'll teach on the internet, I'll teach on social media, I'll teach on Facebook or Zoom calls or whatever I can do from confinement in my apartment to make sure the gospel of Jesus Christ can still bless lives. And it did. It's amazing what the missionary department learned, the skill sets they developed, the technologies that they implemented uh, that are going to help move the work forward even faster as we go forward. I, I, say, I say that, I bring that up because of the context of the epistles we'll be studying this week. This week it is Philippians and Colossians, also pronounced Colossians or Colossians, take your pick. But as Paul is writing to these two uh, groups of saints, he's in prison. He's under house arrest. Now this isn't cruel and unusual punishment, okay? He is a Roman citizen after all. But he cannot freely go about these cities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's got to be eating him up. You remember when he was in Athens waiting for missionary companions to come? And he got antsy. He couldn't just sit there and wait. And so he hiked up Mars Hill and began preaching to the philosophers there. Every place he went, he'd go straight to the synagogue and begin preaching to the Jews. When they turned their back on him, he turned around and then began walking the streets and preaching to the Gentiles. This was a man on the move and a missionary that was always oh, moving those beautiful feet upon every mountain that he could. He wanted to publish peace. And now he's in prison. How is the work going to go forward when I can't even leave? Well, the word will. And as people come to visit him in prison, he will write a letter and give it back to them and say, thank the people who sent you and then bring this message home with you. And there we get the letter to the Philippian and the Colossian saints. It's actually amazing because as you read these letters, you wouldn't know that Paul was in prison. There occasionally there's a tiny little hint that he's waiting for, well, the verdict 
am I going to be freed or am I going to be killed? And, and he was okay with either option, as we'll see. But so often, it's, you, don't, you don't get a sense that he's stuck there. Instead, you get a sense that he is rejoicing in the opportunity to serve, including to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. His attitude is incredible. If you think about what Viktor Frankl said about his time in the concentration camps in World War II, yes, the Nazis could inflict unimaginable suffering, but they couldn't change a person's attitude unless that person allowed that to happen. And Viktor Frankl wouldn't allow it. Neither would Paul. And so to see his rejoicing, to see his hope, to see his faith, I cannot be moved. <laughs> oh, it's amazing to see the perspective that he brings to persecution and to opposition and to suffering and sorrow. And whenever we find ourselves in similar circumstances, I hope that we can gain some strength and some perspective from letters like Philippians and Colossians. Now, this makes it easy to have a first half and second half of the lesson. And so first half, we're going to be in Philippi. And Philippi was a city in northeastern Greece. That Paul goes there on his second missionary journey, and it's about as far west as the gospel's ever been up to that point. Uh, so he is pushing the envelope and trying to spread the gospel as far as he can. It's an interesting city because it is a Roman colony, and most of the people who live there are veterans from Roman, Roman legions. And so there's a lot of patriotism and nationalism, which is going to make things a little bit different for Paul, because the real citizenship he's, he's focusing on is the kind we studied last week in Ephesians, fellow citizens with the saints. There is a king of, king, of kings that far surpasses the, the rank of Caesar. And so will you shift your allegiance to the Savior instead of to the emperor? Now, one of the things that we're going to see as we, as we dive into Philippians, there was a man named Epaphroditus, great, great name. Think of that next time you have a, a son. And he was one of these Philippian saints, and he has heard, along with his, his fellow members, that Paul is in prison. Now, it's tricky because he's, Paul's in prison all the time. I mean, he's constantly facing persecution. And so which imprisonment are we talking about here? We remember he was in prison in Caesarea back in, in Israel before they shipped him off to Rome. And then he's imprisoned again in Rome. Which one of those is, is the location where he's writing this letter? Or, or was it a different imprisonment? Some scholars suggest that perhaps he was in prison during his years in Ephesus because there was some persecution there too. And Ephesus was a lot closer to Philippi and to Colossae. And so maybe it was uh, an imprisonment we don't know as much about. I mean, Acts doesn't mention one like that, but it's possible. And so location, 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 maybe it's there that he's writing these letters. Again, we don't know for sure. And in some ways it doesn't matter. We just know he is, he is imprisoned. And Epaphroditus comes bearing gifts. The Philippian saints have heard about what Paul is going through and they love him. They remember, it's, it's their missionary, right? And as they catch wind of his imprisonment, they, they pass the plate and they gather money, donations, just to try to help support Paul through his imprisonment. And Epaphroditus is selected, a trustworthy messenger, to bring the, these donations to Paul in prison, wherever that prison might be, and, and cheer him up and let him know the saints in Philippi are praying for you. And they're putting their money where their mouth is. And so anything we can do to help. And Paul is so grateful for them and for Epaphroditus. And he's so grateful for the opportunity to 
share the gospel, even from the prison cell, that he quickly pens a letter there in prison and sends it back to Philippi with Epaphroditus. And so imagine Epaphroditus coming home and gathering the saints together in the Philippi first ward and saying, oh, it was so good to see Paul. He's doing surprisingly well. Well, it's not surprising considering it's Paul. Uh, you can't stop the guy, okay? And so uh, they're in bonds. Oh, he's, he's the same missionary we always knew him to be. In fact, he wrote, he wrote us a letter. So sit back and gather around and, and let me read it to you. So uh, picture me as Epaphroditus. And here I am reading to each of you Paul's beautiful letter to all of you Philippian saints. Chapter 1, verse 1, his normal salutation. Paul and Timotheus. So good old Timothy, Paul's right-hand man in so many of his missionary labors, is his right-hand man here during this time as well. And so mission companions writing this letter together. They are the servants of Jesus Christ, and they're writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. With the bishops and deacons, and that could be more of a, a vague salutation to certain leaders in the church. Then again, you really could start seeing the church organization taking shape. Remember last week in Ephesians that as gifts to the church, God gives to some of them apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and teachers and, and pastors. Well, to some he's giving bishops and to some he's giving deacons. And so are these, are these offices beginning to take shape in the church? Well, to all of these saints there in Philippi, Paul's message is one of grace and peace, as it was basically to every other place that he's writing. That's what he says here. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He then says to them, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Can you feel Paul's love for them? Again, he's their missionary. They're his converts. They're his fellow citizens and beloved brothers and sisters. And he loves them and they love him. I, I in some way, okay, you COVID missionaries, as hard as it was, I am a little bit jealous that you at least had the technology to preach. We wouldn't have been able to do that in our day. And one of the things that I miss most about that absent technology is how hard it's been to stay in contact with old converts. Uh, we didn't have social media. I couldn't email them. And, and I miss those celestial souls that I got to share the gospel with. Do you feel that, you return missionaries? Uh, of, of any age, not just COVID, but... Whenever you served, are you still in contact with some? I mentioned a little while ago that, that Victor Felix, an amazing convert to the church in Puerto Rico, came to Utah. And though I didn't teach him, uh, I was his own leader when he, when he was baptized. And I got to meet him after the fact. Amazing, amazing man. I got to, uh, he, my parents and I were the first family that got to, stayed in his home uh, when parents came, came to pick up missionary children. And catching up with him after... 25 years was incredible. And to get a sense here from Paul, I, I love you. I'm always praying for you. Every time I'm making requests with joy. Are, are you sure you're in prison, Paul? <laughs> yeah, well, physically, yes. Emotionally, no. Because emotionally, spiritually, I'm with you. 
I'm picturing myself walking the streets of Philippi with you. I'm picturing sitting down in a house church, sharing an agape meal, giving one another a holy salutation, and rejoicing in the gospel that brought us together in the first place. Any of you return missionaries who have contact information and can, or have stayed connection, connected with people that you taught in the mission field, will you send them a letter to the Philippians? <laughs> will you share with them, as Paul does here, that you thank God for them every time they cross your mind? And in prayer after prayer, you rejoice in the opportunity God gave you to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. And he is so grateful for that fellowship. Wouldn't you feel that if you were cut off from the people you love? Joseph Smith described similar feelings when he was in Liberty Jail and talked about letters he received from the saints and how much joy they brought to his soul. He wrote letters back to them, expressing his love and concern for them. I know you're praying for me. I'm praying for you too. And to get a sense of Paul doing the same thing here, what a beautiful beginning to an incredible letter. He goes on in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And again, in Paul's case, he was there when this good work was begun in them. He isn't there now. He can't be now. But he trusts that the Lord can. And so what a powerful handing of the baton to the Lord saying, he started the work. He was the real companion. Okay, You're his converse, not mine. But he which began that work will never stop performing it. He's going to continue working on you until the day of his coming. Later in the book of Hebrews, we'll see the Lord referred to as an author and finisher of faith. And that's exactly what Paul is praying he'll be on behalf of the Philippians. He authored your faith. He began the good work in you. He's going to finish that faith, even if it requires all the time necessary between now and his second coming. Trust that he'll finish what he started. Paul then adds, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Again, this love that he has for these converts. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. It's a verse like that where you see the slightest hint that Paul is in prison. Here I am in my bonds. Why? Because of my defense of the gospel. My confirmation of its truth. I'm not going to back down. I cannot be moved, right? I don't care about persecution. None of these things scare me off at all. Remember throughout the book of Acts, it was always the disciples, the fellow disciples that had to almost forcibly remove Paul from danger. He, he was willing to face it all, unafraid. So here, even in my bonds, I would do anything for you, including write you this letter. In verse 8, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And those bowels, I mean, talk about deep, deep love for his fellow saints. Longing after them. Kind of his guts. Have you ever felt that longing so deeply uh, for a, a, a loved one? Uh, this could be someone that has passed on and you ache for them. 
This could be you're in the dating and courtship stage and, and you just can't be with your beloved other and you, you long to be with them. Paul is feeling that way for the saints. And it's down in the guts, the bowels of Jesus Christ, he calls them. That's where compassion lies. That's where empathy arises. And he feels so deeply for the, the saints that he loves. And he hopes they feel the same. He says, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And that's not so specifically directed. It doesn't have to be love for him alone. It's love for one another. It's love for God. Please be keeping the two great commandments. But notice what that love is coupled with. This is an interesting contrary. And we saw in Ephesians the contrary of speaking the truth in love. Well, what's the contrary here? It's abound in love. More and more. Increase in that. But make sure it's coupled with knowledge and judgment. There's something interesting about love that it does seem to be in need of a contrary to keep it from becoming so unconditional as to give allowance to things that God would not allow. The second great commandment must be coupled with the first great commandment to keep it in check in the way it ought to be. Contraries like love and law Contraries like, again, second great commandment, first great commandment. Contraries like love and truth, or here, love and knowledge, or love and judgment. I've sometimes shared this verse to, to couples in love, in dating and, and courtship time, and say, the first half of that is probably easy for you guys, isn't it? Your love is abounding yet more and more. They're like, oh yeah, it is, it is, oh, wonderful, good. Paul's suggestion here to you, though, would be keep your brain on. Even though your heart is expanding, ready to burst out of your chest, keep the brain fully engaged. Make sure that knowledge and judgment are, are part of the, the conversation here. And that's important, not just in dating and courtship, but in the way we love those around us. For it to be true charity, the pure love of Christ, Agape, as opposed to one of its lesser forms, the, the storge or, or philia or eros especially, uh, those other kinds of love that the Greeks described. If it's going to be the pure love of Christ, then you take those other kinds of love, friendship and affection and romantic interest and so on, and couple them with whatever contraries are necessary to purify that love so that love can say both yes and no that love can have long-term consequences in, in mind and not just caught up in the short-term emotion of it all, okay? So think about that in terms of how you love those around you and make sure that knowledge and judgment are a part of it. You're going to be able to tell that's the case with the next line, that ye may approve things that are excellent. And another way to say that is discern what is best or understand what really matters. That's the knowledge and judgment side of things kicking in, okay? Can you approve things that are excellent instead of just being enamored by a pretty face? He says that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So love sincerely, but don't offend God in the ways you manifest that love. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God.
Oh, even when I said a moment ago that this love was not unconditional, I felt almost this twinge of, uh-oh, is somebody going to push back against that? That, of course, love needs to be unconditional. Well, yes and no. Unconditionally loving, but does that mean unconditionally blessing or unconditionally condoning? No, I will love you no matter what, but I cannot bless you the way I would hope. Think about what God, how, how God feels about these things. And yes, there's an unconditional love, but not an unconditional, not an unconditional blessedness. It's better than unconditional love. It's divine love. It's perfect love. It's godly love. And he's asking us to develop it, develop it as well. Now, verse 12, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Here again is one of those subtle hints that, yes, I'm in prison here. But notice his attitude. Yes, it's happened unto me. He's not blaming anyone. It's just, okay, this is where I find myself. Oh, well. But it's happened unto the furtherance of the gospel. I can't go further than the walls of the house that I'm under house arrest in. I can't go further than the walls of this cell. But the gospel is going further than ever before, not despite my imprisonment, but because of it. He says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Now, palace, does that suggest he's back in Caesarea and it's you know, Festus and, and Felix and, and the others of his kind? Is this a palace in Rome he's referring to? Again, it doesn't matter quite so much exactly where he is, but... Because he's in bonds throughout the palace, all other places, high, low, everything in between, people are, people are curious as to why I'm here. They're wondering why I'm in bonds. What did I do wrong? I mean, think about it. If you ever to see, see somebody in, in behind bars, isn't that the first thing you wonder? Wonder what they did wrong. Well, in this case, this guy doesn't seem like he did anything wrong at all. Why is he here? And does he not know he's in prison? Because, man, this guy's got an incredible attitude. It reminds me of Joseph in Egypt. Remember when he's in prison and he sees the butler and baker and he's like, hey, guys, what's the, why the long face? You know, why, why are you so sad? And can you picture them going, uh, duh, we're in prison? Oh, yeah, <laughs> sorry. I keep forgetting. Uh, I, the, the prison walls, see, the, the bars and chains seem to disappear uh, in my mind, because oh, I, have the, I have the truth, and the truth has set me free. Paul isn't so concerned about the circumstances he finds himself in. And he just rejoices in the opportunity to share the gospel. In some ways, it's like, hey, if I'm captive, at least I have a captive audience. <laughs> Literally. And here they are, other fellow prisoners, or the guards. The guards are stuck with me just like I'm stuck with them. Well, good. I can share the gospel with them. And so throughout the palace, all these other places, people are learning the gospel of Jesus Christ and interest is spreading. If all publicity is good publicity, then the idea of an apostle in chains, even that can publicize the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Joseph Smith was doing the same thing from Liberty and, El and Carthage and, and Gallatin and so many other places that he suffered. Paul then says, many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And that's another way the word is spreading. 
It's another way that, that, God, that his imprisonment is being, is being used to the furtherance of the gospel. It's not just that the people here in the, pal- people in the palace or in the prison or anywhere else are, are hearing about Paul, but fellow members are seeing him suffer, and he seems to have an incredible attitude. Maybe suffering isn't as bad as people make it out to. Maybe persecution and opposition isn't the end of the world after all. And if that person can face the firing squad, so to speak, if that person can can endure well the kind of abuse and scorn and ridicule that is being heaped upon them, then what am I so scared of? There is something amazing about, well, remember how Paul said it to the Romans. And again, he, the, the Romans themselves are in kind of a, a social imprisonment there in the capital of the empire, and it'd be hard to live the gospel with all eyes looking down on you. And yet, what was Paul's statement, his bold declaration? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come what may, who cares what they think? The pointing fingers from the great and spacious building, the mockery and scorn, I'm eating fruit and it's better than anything I've had in my life. So I'm not going to drop it for their sake. No. And these other saints there are, and he's probably writing this in hopes that the Philippian saints will feel the same, that they won't be ashamed of the gospel, that they won't be shy about sharing it despite Persecution, opposition, imprisonment, whatever might come their way. And so to see other people waxing confident by his bonds, you're bolder than you ever were before. Your fear is evaporating. Oh, thank you, Rome, for imprisoning me. Because by putting me in bonds, you have freed the gospel to go forward at an ever-increasing rate. It's like what uh, I think Joseph Smith or Brigham Young said it uh, in the early days that, oh, if you, you kick Mormonism, as it was called back then, you just kick it upstairs. And <laughs> the gospel being kicked upstairs as Paul's in jail. Now, if I could say one last thing about that verse before going on to 15. Beyond Paul's, the, the specifics of Paul's imprisonment and the, the furtherance of the gospel that it produced, Can we bring that kind of attitude and perspective into our own trials? Can we realize that though I may be suffering, perhaps the Lord is getting something out of this he otherwise wouldn't. Perhaps those around me might be blessed in some way based on the way I approach this trial. My father-in-law, I've introduced you to him before, and he's Job 2.0. His life has been difficult for decades. And the kinds of things he's been through, I mean, you put the list down and even Paul, even, yeah, even Paul would be like, wow, Rick, I'm impressed. Even Job would be like, wow, pull up a chair. Uh, I'm going to learn some things from you. I've, I've shared this, I believe, in, in a prior lesson at some point. But this time it bears repeating that at one point early on in my wife and I's marriage, my father-in-law was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And... In some ways, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for my wife. Uh, it, was a, it was a hard moment for everybody, and she just took it in a, in a hard way and was frustrated, understandably so. And was just like, Are, seriously? After everything he's already been through? And of course, of course she's going to end up with cancer. That just, that's what Job's do. She wasn't cursing God and wishing to die, as Job's wife suggested. 
But she got frustrated, and she especially got frustrated at the reaction of other people to her father's latest round of adversity. At one point, in a, in a moment of frustration, she shared with me that somebody, tra trying to con comfort her, a well-meaning well soul said, oh, well, I, I, I guess the Lord is just wanting your dad to learn something from all of this. And that is good in putting a good perspective on our trials, right? We are meant to learn and grow because of them. But not the right time <laughs> to say that to, to my wife. She was still licking her wounds and emotionally and worried about her father. And, and at one point she turned to me after having heard one of those and said to me, what, this is a God's chance to teach my dad something? Why doesn't he teach you? Now, she would never say that to their face, okay? But again, in a dark moment, she, she felt strongly, and it just, you're the one that needs to learn the lesson. My dad's already learned it over and over and over again. He shouldn't have to repeat this class when he's aced it every time he's been rematriculated. Well, the way she said it struck a chord with me, and I said to her as calmly as possible, <laughs> trying to comfort her as well, I said, you know, Em, you may be right. And maybe that's exactly what Heavenly Father's doing. Maybe your dad is the last person on earth that needs to learn this lesson since he already aced the exam. Maybe it is all those, those well-wishers, those well-meaning souls that... Maybe it's they that need the real lesson. But maybe they couldn't handle being the object of that object lesson. They couldn't be the visual aid. But your dad has already proven he could be. And so a willingness on his part, if by my bonds someone else can be made free, that, that's incredibly Christian, because that's exactly what Jesus himself did in the atonement. If I can suffer so that you can learn from my sufferings, if I can be in bonds so you can be more bold, and if I can have a positive attitude in my afflictions in hopes that it teaches you how to do the same when yours come, then I volunteer for the object lesson. And my father-in-law is the type that would be willing to do that. My own father is going through difficult things now, and I see that same kind of attitude in affliction. And I pray that the rest of us, when we see those who are suffering in in Christ-like ways, I hope we take advantage of our chance to learn the lesson that they are teaching us. And if it's you who's the teacher in this, in this classroom, I pray that might give you a measure of meaning for the trials you're enduring. Look around and see other people overcoming fear, becoming more bold, waxing confident because of your bonds. Then he says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. So he's heard, uh, whether they're in Philippi or wherever he happens to be in prison, there are some preaching Jesus, but not in the way they should. It's envious. It's, they're striving together. You remember back in, in Corinth, as there were all these comp the competition and, and comparison. Oh, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Can we get past that? Quit trying to get another notch on your belt, you missionaries out there. Quit, quit preaching out of envy or strife. 
Do it out of goodwill. Purify your motives. He then says, the one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Which kind of missionary are we? Are we preaching out of contention? Ooh, if, we have, if ever we Bible bash, we are. Am I, am I fighting someone? Am I, am I trying to prove them wrong and show them up? I learned that the hard way early on on my mission. And thankfully, it was early enough on I could change things quickly, and I did. But I learned that if you Bible bash, if you preach the gospel through contention, then you lose even when you win. Oh, I really showed them up, didn't I? Oh, that, that leads to a harder heart on their part rather than a softer one. So no, I failed. I need to, I need to preach out of love. Now, yes, I'll need to defend the truth, and that's what he says at the end there. I'm set for the defense of the gospel, but I have to do it in a loving way. My, my defense cannot turn into offense in terms of offending the very person that I'm trying to persuade. I actually love the phrase, though, to be set for the defense of the gospel. Maybe it's the old football player in me. But to be set, not to be offsides, but to be ready. Now, I, I, was, a, I was a wide receiver. I preferred being on the offense because that way I knew the play. I knew what I was doing. That was the one advantage I had. That defender is probably stronger than I am and faster than I am and more athletic than I am. So be it. I know what I'm doing. He's going to be a tiny step behind, and hopefully I can exploit that. But to those who play defense, man, you've got to be ready for everything. And especially there on the line of scrimmage, you have to be set. Because if you're jumpy and you jump off sides, if you're not completely ready and you're still moving around, then you've left a hole that the offense can exploit. You've got to be ready. I see this sometimes on the defensive line, especially some kind of goal line stand. You know, it's, it's fourth and goal from the half yard line. And they've got to score on this one, which means the defense has to stop them. And so often it's, it's looking like a quarterback sneak and you see defensive linemen and linebackers and everyone just crowding around the line of scrimmage trying to create a human wall that no one can cross. Those defensive stands are amazing when they pull them off. But you better be set. For Paul, I'm set. I'm ready. I remember my junior year uh, in the playoffs, there was a, de a defensive back that covered me that belonged on the de defensive line. I'm like, what are you doing here? Defensive backs are supposed to be shorter than receivers. You tower over me. And you're like twice as wide. It was like the worst game of my junior year. I couldn't get off the line of scrimmage. He was so set for the defense that he would hold me up at the line and I couldn't get past the guy. It was so frustrating. Actually, he was my motivation the entire summer between junior and senior year to try to bulk up and get strong enough to get past defenders like that. Well, are we that strong? Are we that set? Can we defend the gospel of Jesus Christ to the point that its, its opposition cannot get off the line of scrimmage? And again, do it in a way that is not offensive to others because I'm still trying to preach it out of love, not contention. I know that's a tall order. We're proving contraries there too. But that's what the Lord is asking of us. Now, verse 18, he then says, What then? Notwithstanding, 
every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's actually a really interesting admission on Paul's part. Remember, he just said, some are preaching out of contention, others are preaching out of love. Some are doing it right, others are doing it wrong. But here in verse 18, well, I'm not trying to justify things uh, or, or say that you should continue. That's why I pushed back in the previous verse. But if people are learning about Jesus, I'll take it. Uh, all publicity is good publicity. And in, in this situation, whether you're preaching in pretense or in truth, if Jesus is being preached, I'll take it. Well, at least I'll take it on the, at the beginning. Please purify your motives. Please change your approach and make sure you begin. I see this in missionaries, some of whom go out out of social pressure more than spiritual conviction. And they are preaching in some ways, out of pretense is probably too strong. But that's the word Paul used. Are your motives, well, are there some ulterior motives? Are you doing this to fit in or it was expected of you? If those were your motivating factors at the beginning of your mission, so be it. At least you're out. And out there, I hope you can purify the reasons that you're here. And what may have started on the lower rung of, of hoped-for reward or fear of consequence can start ascending the ladder until it becomes, even more than duty, true love. The noblest of purposes. That's what Paul is praying for here. And then he says in verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, that's that same confident attitude that he shared with the Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What can you do to me? Slam me behind bars? Big deal. He says, with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. Again, if my imprisonment allows the gospel to pick up speed, if it furthers the work, then thank you for what you're doing you Roman soldiers are my mission companions in a, an ironic sort of way. You're helping the word go forth, so bring it on. He even says this next, and you want to talk about boldness. You want to talk about expectation and hope and no shame and no fear. He says, whether it be by life or by death, doesn't matter. Either way, Christ can be magnified. If I'm around, I can keep preaching him. If I, if I die, then the martyr's blood will be fertilizer for the tree of life to be able to spread its roots and extend its branches even further. I'm fine either way, because as Paul puts it, and this is so beautiful the way he says it, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do you hear that? You sense that boldness? That willingness to do anything and everything that God would have him do. If I live, great. I will preach Christ. If I die, hallelujah. Not only has the kingdom gained another martyr, but I have gained the kingdom of God. Either way, as long as Christ's work goes forward. He says, if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I wot not, or I know not. I, I can't even decide. 
for I am in a strait betwixt two. In other words, I'm the rope in a tug of war. I'm being pulled in both directions, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Do you sense there the strait that Paul is betwixt? Do you get a, an idea that he's being pulled in both directions? And he, he doesn't know which vote to cast as far as breaking the tie. On the one hand, I, I hope I get a guilty verdict. I hope I get the death sentence because as soon as death comes, then I come unto Christ. I get to be with him and I can't wait. But then the world is out a missionary a very bold and zealous one. And so for your sake, I mean, for, if it was just up to me, let me come home. But for your sake, it's probably better to stay, even if staying means suffering. Okay, I'll leave it in the Lord's hands, but there, there you have it. Do you get the same sense from the 12 Nephite disciples in 3rd Nephi? As Jesus asks, what do you want? And they're in a strait betwixt two. Nine end up going in the direction of, oh, I just want to be with Jesus. So take me soon. And he says he will. 72nd birthday, <laughs> which would be strange. That'd be a strange birthday. The other three, though, ah, seeing yeah, that's a good goal. They want to be with Jesus. I, am I in the wrong for not? It's not that I don't want to be with you. And you picture the Lord reading their thoughts and just smiling. It's okay. Your, their desire is a beautiful one. Yours is even more beautiful because it's more selfless. You want to stay and serve? Continue bringing souls unto me. That's a noble desire. In fact, it reminds me of John. And that's what he tells them. Uh, this is the end of the book of John when Peter and John become the personification of the nine Nephites versus the three. And Peter wants to be with Jesus. He's the one that dove in the boat as soon as he recognized him on shore and swam as quickly as possible to be with him. Take me soon. Because to be with you, oh, to die is gain. And then there's John. Somebody's got to stay back in the boat with all the fish that Jesus helped us catch. And so John wants to stay. He wants to extend his mission indefinitely because it will be better for the people he's trying to serve. That's what Paul is being pulled between. In a way, it's a pull for us all, including those who are suffering near the end of their life and just wanting to be done. My grandma was that way. She had a sign on her, on her wall that said, here today and here tomorrow. And I think it showed a, like a stick figure of a person with, like, uh, with a leash. And it was just this sense of, it was her comical way of saying, I just want to go. I would rather, to die is gain. And I'm, I have a desire to depart, to be with Christ, as Paul said here. And yet, for our sake, we were grateful she stayed a little longer. For our sake, in terms of time to be with her, and also time to be purified ourselves through service and through seeing suffering for those who are struggling because you can't yet go 
or you see a loved one who can't yet pass on, though it would be so much easier for them to go and be with Jesus. Uh, there might be something here in these verses to ponder, to wrestle with, to allow the Spirit to work on in you, since we're all caught between that straight as well. In verse 25, then, Paul says, And having this confidence, and that's language he's used repeatedly in this first chapter, uh, you wouldn't know he's, he's in behind bars, but having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Well, he didn't stay in the straight <laughs> too long. He cast his deciding vote. He broke the tie and he said, yeah, I'm going to stay. Once I vocalized it and realized that dying now would be almost selfish, because I want to be with Jesus so bad. Oh, that made it easy. Because I don't want to give in to any selfish bone in my body. And so if it's about other people, then I'm, I'm here. And I'm willing to abide. I'm willing to continue as long as need be. If it blesses you with joy and faith and the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, in some ways, this is Abinadi. You can't take me yet because I haven't fulfilled my mission. This is Mormon. I still have some sacred records to pass down to Moroni. So I have a feeling I'm going to survive the next battle. This is Joseph Smith. I cannot be taken yet because my work is not yet accomplished. <laughs> Hugh Nibley, near the end of his life, was working on his magnum opus, kind of life work. And one of my professors said he ran into Hugh Nibley on campus once and said, asked him, so how's that book coming? And a very ancient Hugh Nibley smiled little tongue-in-cheek and said, oh, I made a deal with God that I couldn't die until I was done, so I'm working really slow. <laughs> well, the Lord did take him home before he was completely finished. But the sense that you get here from Paul, there is this desire. I'm with you. I'm with you to the very end. Let's go to work. He then says in verse 27, only let your conversation and we would translate that as behavior or way of life. It's not just talking the talk. It's walking the walk. So let that conversation, let that lifestyle be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Please live up to the gospel you've embraced. That's, what, that's the wish of every missionary to their old converts. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, since he doesn't know what's going to happen. If I'm freed, I can come right back to Philippi and catch up, catch up with you and pick up where we left off. If I'm condemned to death, then I'll be absent. But either way, live the gospel so that I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That, too, is every missionary's dream. The people that I taught in the mission field, will they stand fast? Will they stay we're going to see that emphasized in the letter to the Colossians as well. Will they be one with one another? In mind, in spirit, will they strive, fight? There's armor of God, right? There's marching forward. Will they strive together for the faith of the gospel? The unity, unity is something Paul has preached in every single letter so far. And go figure, the church is growing by leaps and bounds, and Gentiles and Jews coming together as Christians, and Whew, how are we going to pull this off? Well, let the gospel continue to work on you. Stand steadfast within it. And then at the end, 28 through 30, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Again, if my imprisonment makes you bold, that, then all the better. 
Don't be afraid of them. Don't be ashamed. Nothing terrified, which is to them an evident token of perdition. Ooh, that's interesting. Your fear is going to end up encouraging your enemies. They're going to look at you and go, see, I, kn I knew you didn't have the gospel. You didn't have a real testimony. This can't be true. If it were, you'd live and die for it. But no, as soon as things got hard, you left. You were t I was able to strike fear into your hearts. Where's the faith that you keep proclaiming? Oh, no, this is evident token of perdition. But then Paul says, but to you of salvation and that of God. And what's interesting there is if your fear is encouragement to the enemy, your, your ability to overcome that fear, how oh, there's evidence of salvation that you've put your trust in God. Either way, this is an opportunity to, to prove which side you're on. And either your enemies or your Lord himself will be thrilled by the response you make to your adversity. There's a JST to this phrase, by the way. It says, in nothing terrified by your adversaries who reject the gospel, which bringeth on them destruction, but you who receive the gospel, salvation. So again, similar choice set before them. Which side will you be on? Persecution, opposition, tribulation, that really does tend to move us in one direction or the other. It helps us distinguish wheat from tares and sheep from goats and foolish from wise because we're up against something, okay? He then says, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, that's the easy part, but also to suffer for his sake. That's the harder part. Having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Oh, it's one thing to believe, my Philippian friends. It's another thing to prove that belief. Remember in an earlier letter, Paul talked about proving the sincerity of your love? Well, how about proving the sincerity of your faith? This is the parable of the sower. When the sun comes and starts beating down on these tender plants, and the sunlight there, that heat, is meant to represent persecution, tribulation, and affliction. How are you going to do it? Are you going to be able to handle it? Are your tap roots sunk deep enough to be able to access living water? Because if you have enough living water, then sun actually strengthens you instead of shriveling you. So prove it is what he's asking for. Do it for the Lord's sake. Now, speaking of the Lord, if you know him well enough and know what he's done for you, you want to talk about martyrdom. You want to talk about suffering to be able to make his followers bold. You want to talk about being in a strait betwixt and it'd be so much easier just to throw in the towel and release things and yet Jesus suffered even more than man can suffer except it be unto death. That Jesus held on and his divinity forced his humanity to endure more than what mere humanity could. Wow, picture Paul in his imprisonment saying, I'm, I'm, don't, don't look at me like I'm doing some big thing. Look at Jesus. That's what I'm doing. And I, my suffering cannot hold a candle to his. So in chapter 2, let's talk about him. Let's shine the light on the light of the world. And if my sufferings can make you bold and further the gospel, imagine what it would do to embrace and understand the sufferings of Jesus Christ.
Paul says in verse 1 and 2, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ. And he's speaking a little tongue-in-cheek here because he knows there is. Of course there's consolation in Christ. What do you think is getting me through my imprisonment? Okay, every, every piece of suffering I've ever endured, it's because of the consolation I find in Christ. But here, if there be therefore any of that, I'll just back up and oh, almost play hard to get here and just oh, throw out some possibilities. Is there any consolation in Christ? I'll let you decide. If any comfort of love, ever felt any of that? If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercy, just let me throw out those hints, those possibilities, and have you answer the rhetorical question. Is there any? Have you felt consolation in Christ? Have you felt comforted when His love fills your heart? Have you felt the Spirit's fellowship, even when it feels like you might be abandoned by any earthly hope? Are there bowels? That's down deep in the guts. Is there something that's keeping you going? Are there mercies there that are filling you? Well, if there are any of those things, then how ought you to act? Next verse. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Such an important principle. Like I said, unity is mentioned in every letter. And a unity in suffering, interesting. A unity brought on by consolation in Christ. And bowels and mercies that are yearning for one another. Because we've been through it together. I've heard it said that one of the greatest ways to form bonds is to go through something incredibly difficult together. I've seen that the case in my, in my own life with my wife and with our children. And having suffered things, having gone through difficulty, it does forge an incredible bond. And Paul is, is seeing that. He's praying for that. If you felt any of those things, there are others who have felt the same. And to recognize in one another a fellow sufferer. We'll see that idea again a little bit later in this letter. But when I meet other people who have dealt with mental health challenges, there's an automatic connection. When I have met people that have suffered similar things, it's they get it. And you get it too. Let that be a source of, of unity in all that we do. Unity with one another and unity with the Lord. He then says in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. After all, those things are going to destroy unity, right? So forget the strife. Forget the vainglory. We have to be humble in all of this. Remember President Benson's definition of pride as enmity, that oppositionality. Think about President Nelson's recent address, conference address on no contention. We have to eliminate it entirely. So no strife, no vainglory. Instead, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What I love about the way Paul phrased that, okay, forget the vainglory, let's work on lowliness instead. And since you seem so prone to competition and comparison, fine, just make sure you have the other person come out ahead. Okay? 
again, if you if it's human nature to divide and 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 compare, then look for someone else's strengths instead of automatically looking down on those around you by focusing on their weaknesses. Look up at them. Focus on their strength. It's amazing what would change if we were to esteem others better than ourselves. And not in some kind of hollow or shallow self-deprecating kind of way. Not in insincerity. And not even in false humility, uh, which is a, a strange, ironic form of pride. Yeah, this is not pride from below we're trying to develop, no. This is an honest assessment of, this person's amazing at something I'm not that amazing at. And I'm, I've been given gifts in other areas, and I'm trying to contribute that to the whole. But I'm amazed at that person's gifts. So grateful for them. And we are elevating others. They'll elevate you. It'll come back. <laughs> Don't worry. But you see that lifting one another and all ascending higher in the process? Or how about verse 5? Verse 5 is the beginning of an absolutely incredible passage. Verse 5 is the lead-in. And then verse 6 through 11 is most likely an early Christian hymn. We're going to see another one in Colossians chapter 1, where there's a sense of, I mean, the language seems more poetic than usual. It sounds like Paul, but not entirely. And so what scholars have, have concluded as a result is, I wonder if there were just certain Christian hymns. Ask any primary child or any former primary child what they remember from primary. And it's usually the songs more than the, the sermons. And there's something about music that just sticks truth in the mind and the mind can't let go. And so there is belief that there were certain Christian hymns that circulated through different branches of the church, kind of became... No common, uh, commonly held belief and understanding, and that Paul could refer to them, bring them back, and oh, everybody's singing along. And so verse 6 through 11 is going to be one of these Christian hymns, most likely. And again, if that's the case, then we are seeing some of the earliest fragments of Christian knowledge that preceded even the writing of these letters of Paul. And remember, the letters of Paul preceded the writing of the Gospels that we studied the first half of our year. So little snippets like Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11 might be some of the earliest recorded Christianity that you'll find anywhere, okay? Now, verse 5 sets it up. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus thought a certain way and we ought to think that way too. Do your best to embrace this same perspective. Are you ready? And this was the mind of Jesus. Cue tabernacle choir. <laughs> Cue primary singing. And here's this ancient hymn, most likely, describing what the mind of Christ entailed. Jesus thought this way, and this is the way we ought to think as well. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now the hymn isn't over yet. There's still the second verse. 
But let me pause here and, oh, and unpack a little of this passage. The beginning of it is, is incredibly powerful, though there are two very different ways to translate this. I want to honor both of them, okay? The way the King James translators gave it to us, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is one of the most powerful passages to help describe our divine potential, that we can become like our Father in heaven, and that that's his hope and goal for us, children to grow up in God until they become a little more like their parents. This is never to usurp the throne. This is never to leapfrog God. This is simply what Paul said clearly to the Romans, that we are meant to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is, I am a child of God, and children grow up to be more like their parents. We have seen that so often taught beautifully by Paul elsewhere. So I'm not putting all my eggs just in this translation's basket. But when we see this translation, it echoes so beautifully along with what those other places have taught. It's not robbery to be equal with God. And often when I speak, with, especially with evangelical Christian friends, and they are scandalized by our belief in divine potential. Greek Orthodoxy embraces that just like we do. Uh, the apotheosis and divinization, uh, deification, pick, pick whatever uh, official term you want for it. But our ability, our potential to grow up and become like God, Eastern Orthodoxy still embraces. And they will, t- will hold to verses like this and verses like we saw in Romans 8. Verses like Jesus in chapter 10 of John, when he says, Why are you calling me blasphemous for claiming to be the Son of God? Your own scriptures say that ye are gods, lowercase g, and children of the Most High. I'm no different than you in some ways. You have divine potential within you as well. And, And again, Eastern Orthodoxy still embraces it. It's only Western Christianity. It's Catholicism and it's intellectual heirs that that think it's robbery to be equal with God. Thus, it's blasphemy to claim any kind of potential to become more like him. Sit on his throne? No, that's usurping the throne. And we would say, no, no, no. The book of Revelation says he wants us to sit there with him and with Christ. Joint heirs, okay? That's why I love the King James translation here. It's not robbery on our part. It is generosity on God's part. Now, thank you, King James translators, for giving us that. But that is not the only way you could translate the Greek. And in many cases, as you look at alternate translations, it it clarifies things. Uh, It's a little more modern in its syntax or its vocabulary, and so it's like, oh yeah, I, I can now see what the King James translators were saying. There's not, it's not that different, it's just a little more easy to understand. In this passage, sometimes in translation, it, the original Greek is so tricky that depending on how you order the words and depending on which synonym you choose as the translation, it can radically alter the, the concept that is being conveyed. And that happens in this passage. Because most other modern translations render it not as... It's not robbery to be equal with God, but rather they kind of reverse the order of the language and let, let's talk about being equal with God and admit that it's not something that you should 
hold on to overzealously. It's not meant to be grasped. It's not meant to be exploited for your own advantage. That's where they get the idea of robbery. It's the robbery word that's the hardest one here. Because it does, the Greek does give a sense of spoil, of, of plunder. And so, on the one hand, you get a sense of, that's not yours, and you shouldn't be plundering it. You shouldn't be grabbing it. But what if it is mine? Well, then I shouldn't be so kind of holding on to it, kind of gripping it so jealously as if I'm afraid someone else is going to come and plunder it from me. No, I'm, I've plundered my own things. It's almost like that language of section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants when Martin Harris is told, quit coveting your own property. And he's like, huh? If it's mine, how can I covet it? Oh, it's not mine, it's yours. I get it. But there is this sense of, am I holding on too jealously to what I already possess? Am I plundering something I should be willing to part with in order to share it with other people? You get the idea? So, for example, the New International Version of that passage puts it this way. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Or how about the New American Standard Bible? Who, as he already existed in the form of God, remember this passage is talking about Jesus, and since he already existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And again, that grasped word is that idea of robbery to the King James translators. Do you understand the difference? And again, this is not an either or. This is a both and. Both are accurate translations. And to see our potential in the King James or Christ's condescension in the other more modern translations. Both of those are true principles. And they are taught clearly elsewhere. It's here in this more poetic rendering that there can be some confusion, but also some deep appreciation once we wrap our hearts around the poetry. We've talked already about the ascension part, that it's not robbery for us to to, to believe in divine potential. But now let's pivot and talk about the condescension part. Because in some ways that fits even more beautifully in what follows in this hymn. Because what Jesus was willing to do, and again, think of Paul, with all of his glorious apostolic authority, being willing to lower himself and go under house arrest. A Roman citizen being willing to be imprisoned by Rome. And a bold disciple of Jesus Christ willing to suffer bonds that the gospel might go forward with furtherance. You see Paul condescending? Well, his lowering of self was nothing compared to the lowering of Jesus, who being on par with God himself, on an equality with the Father, I and him and him in me, abiding in one another, God's only begotten Son in the flesh, His dearly beloved Son. Willing to come down to our level? I mean, the way he said it in that passage, he made himself of no reputation. And yet, what a reputation he had. 
to be willing to separate himself from that, to, to divest himself of royal robes, and to come down and be clothed in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, in the middle of Palestine, under the Roman thumb, some far outreach of the Roman Empire, a time of no technology. I mean, the irony of the condescension is intense. And for Jesus to be willing to do that, to make himself of no reputation. That phrase, by the way, other translations, speak of pouring out his divinity. To imagine being filled to the brim, the cup of Christ, the glory of God, and then to pour it out. It just won't fit in this earthen vessel. And so let me leave my divinity here at home. Let me disrobe from the, the regal robes and, and go down and be like man almost. This is the word of God, but the word being willing to be made flesh to dwell among us. To lower himself to our level. There's... Remember when Isaiah talked, this is Isaiah 55, one of the most glorious sermons, uh, excuse me, 53, Isaiah 53, one of the most glorious suffering servant songs in Isaiah. And in it, it talks about him pouring out his soul unto death. Well, if in the crucifixion he is pouring out his soul unto death, if in Gethsemane he's pouring out his blood in order to atone, that's the end of his life. At the beginning, he poured something else out to start the whole process. He poured out his divinity. He poured out his reputation. He took off the crown. And years later, would have it replaced with a crown of thorns. That's the condescension of Christ. It's glorious. It's what, it's among other things, is what's motivating Paul to condescend himself. And what did he say to, to preface this hymn? Let this mind be in you. Be willing to condescend. Be willing to pour out your reputation. Be willing to come down a few notches so you can meet people where they are and understand them and empathize with them. Be more Christ-like in that way. Can you imagine if this were one of the earliest Christian hymns? In some ways, it would be the ancient equivalent of Jesus once of humble birth. And the irony of that hymn, was it Parley P. Pratt who wrote that one? Describing the condescension and its ironies, that he would be willing to come down and be of humble birth. Oh, just wait though, flip it. There will be another equal and opposite irony when he of humble birth comes in glory and returns to earth. It's a beautiful hymn, as is this one. But to be made in the likeness of man after the fashion of man, to be humbled to the point that he would obey death when he had the power to make death obey him. Even the death of the cross, which is about as humiliating as you can get. But Jesus was willing. We have to be willing to. I remember years ago, trying to study everything Mark Twain ever wrote. I'm not completely done, but I'm close. And... In one of his, I was trying to understand his uh, religious approach, because it was kind of irreligious. Well, it was majorly irreligious. 
And I read one of his lesser known works called The American Claimant. It's no Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn. If you haven't read it, you're not missing a ton. But the plot is fascinating because it's, it basically describes, remember, uh, uh, Mark Twain loved to do this. He loved to have these role reversals. Uh, Prince and the Pauper is one of his most famous. You know, have someone lowly that takes the, 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 the throne and have somebody regal cast out in the street. They happen to be so, they're like twins. They look so much alike that people can't tell the difference. That's a, a better story. But in The American Claimant, it is an, an American who is so enamored by the thought of British royalty, and he feels that, no, there's nobility, I have noble blood, and I should be in, on some estate somewhere in, in England. Meanwhile, there's a British lord, someone of the nobility, who's so enamored by American democracy that he feels it's, it's unbecoming of him to have some kind of title that he did nothing to deserve. He just was born into it. And so there's kind of a role reversal here in that story. And the British nobleman moves to the United States and pretends to have no nobility. No, he's not aristocracy. He's just like everybody else. And, I mean, to an early American audience, you can picture Twain's readers going, who on earth would give up that kind of glory? Well, that's condescension. And put that story on steroids, and you see the Son of God himself pouring out his divinity to fit in a mortal cup. Okay? Wrap your heart around this and your mind because we're supposed to develop that mind within us as well. Many of you sisters, by the way, personify this reality. Because especially those who decided, and I'm not trying to rank things here, okay? Remember Elder Cook's comments, do the best you can, trust they're doing the best they can, eliminate all judgment, uh, or comparison, get past that. But for those sisters who decided to raise their children at home, who decided to put thoughts of work and careers and so on on hold, to be able to emphasize those formative years, in some ways you had the mind of Christ. For you fathers who didn't do everything in your career so that you could instead focus on the work that needed to be done within the walls of your own home. Uh, those who embrace President McKay's statement that no other success will compensate for failure there. Well then, there's some condescension on your part as well. But especially for those mothers. My own mom could have been anything. And instead she chose to be everything to her children. As the children grew and began leaving the home, there was time for an, an entire new, new career. And she was just as successful in it as she was in her primary and prior role as full-time mother at home. Teaching other people's children and winning awards as a teacher. Oh, she, she was deserving of every reward her, or every award her children could have given her. But there was something about being of no reputation, since the world does not applaud those who make that kind of self-sacrifice. Well, you're not helping the economy, or you're not, you're not running companies and ruling the world. Oh, I'm 
I am the world for these little children, and I'm blessing them. The condescension of mothers is one of the closest things I've seen to the condescension of Christ, and it's beautiful. But then the rest of the hymn, if we're willing to condescend like that, like Jesus did in verse 6 through 8, then verse 9 through 11, what's the result? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's the second half of Jesus once of humble birth. That's when the first reversal is reversed once again. We saw the condescension in the first half of this hymn. We see the, the con-ascension or the re-ascension of Jesus in the second. He poured out his divinity, but it was poured back into him. And post-mortality, he had more room than ever to receive it. He was clothed once again in his royal robes. Somehow they fit even better, having been made flesh before. To be exalted? Every, above every name? How's that for someone who'd, been, who'd poured out that reputation? Again, if, if we follow the example of, of mortal mothers, then mother is one of those names that is above any other name, any other profession. It is highly exalted. And the day will come when children, symbolically speaking, bow the knee in gratitude for what their mothers have done for them. And again, any kind of condescension, any offering we make that lowers us in the world's eyes so we can be exalted in the eyes of God, that's part of condescension too. That's part of the mind of Christ. By the way, speaking specifically of the language Paul uses here, back to Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. That's the passage where we get that phrase from. Elder Maxwell once said in a beautiful talk, if that's going to happen someday anyway, we ought to start doing that in advance. It will mean much less for us to kneel down then when, it is no, when we are no longer able to stand. So choose, exercise faith, confess the name of Christ, bow the knee before him before circumstances bring you to your knees, before the coming of Christ makes it unavoidably obvious that Christ is who the prophet said he is. We can exercise faith in that in advance. Paul then says in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now that's an all-important verse. You'd expect it to be a powerful passage right on the heels of this incredible hymn. As soon as the mic gets passed back to Paul, uh, the, the tabernacle choir has ended its incredible music. And then the apostle takes the stand once again and says, Wherefore? In other words, because of what we know of Jesus and what we know he's asking us of ourselves, 
What must we do, my beloved brothers and sisters? First of all, you have been so obedient. You obeyed when I was with you. I have all the confidence that you will obey when I'm not with you. You don't need supervision. That's a, that's a great moment, by the way. Talk about growing up in God. Talk about being ready to bear the robes that he's trying to provide us. We no longer need supervision. We're now doing it because we've been changed. We want to, not because the Lord is looking over our shoulders. That hit, again, I work with so many freshmen this year. Uh, my students are, tend to be young, and the, the freshmen especially are adulting for the first time. And some of them crash and burn. It's hard. Others, oh, they, they soar because they've finally spread their own wings. They're not just hitchhiking a ride on mom and dad's back anymore. My freshman year of college, I got to BYU and I realized I don't have to go to church on Sunday because nobody's going to check on me. And I don't have to read my scriptures because mom and dad aren't going to walk past and see if I have the book open. I don't have to pray anymore because nobody's going to see. Huh. Free at last, free at last. And guess what I did that Sunday? I went to church. And guess what I did every day between Sundays? I read my scriptures and prayed. In some ways, nothing changed. And yet in other ways, everything did. Because I'd changed. I realized finally, I'm not doing this because my parents expect it. There's no supervision. I'm doing it because I know that it's the best way to live. And Paul is banking on that for these Philippian saints. And then the advice that he gives them, unsupervised as they might be, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I'll admit, we Latter-day Saints love that verse. We quote it all the time. Uh, To work out your salvation. Come on, roll up the sleeves. Get at it. Go do something. Fear, trembling. there's, There's a lot riding on this. And so I better be doing this, doing the Lord's work. Well, remember when we talked in... Ephesians, that there was a verse that evangelicals love to throw in our face. But just keep reading. Uh, not, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, great, I get that. But keep reading, and the next verse is, God is working in us to bring about good works in us, through us. So yeah, we've, we've got to be fully engaged in this. Well, they love the first half, we love the second. The roles reverse here in Philippians, because Latter-day Saints love the first part, and evangelical Christians love the second. We're supposed to love them both, okay? (laughs) Whether it was the Ephesians uh, pair or the Philippians pair. Because, yes, we need to work out our own salvation. But does that mean we're earning it? Does that mean we're the ones that pull it off and therefore deserve it? Because, no, then it would be of works and we would end up boasting. God would owe it to us and it would be a payment of debt rather than a gift of grace. So you've got to hold on to the second half. And again, if there's ever two halves that we want to quote one without the other, and another group wants to quote the other without the one, well, guess what? You just found yourself a contrary. You found yourself opposite goods that have to be coupled together. That there's a Goldilocks zone by combining the two, and you're outside of it if you only emphasize one or the other. And it doesn't matter which one you picked. So here... Yes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is work enough to do ere the sun goes down. But it's not that we are earning it and that God owes it to us. 
because he's still working in us all along. That's what that Ephesians passage said. Here, it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The Methodists coined a term called prevenient grace. And prevenient, you Spanish speakers might be able to hear the root there. Pre, pre, venient, venir, prevenir, pre-coming. Prevenient means to come before. And so the idea of prevenient grace is this idea that God offers us his grace, his enabling power, so that we can accept his invitation to move forward to receive the full measure of grace that he wants to provide for us. It's God working in us and through us all along. Do you sense a symbiotic relationship where we would say, they, evangelicals would say, no, it's, it's Jesus does the whole thing start to finish. And we would push back and say, but, but wait a minute, we accepted the offer, we accepted the invitation, And so to come unto him, aren't I doing something? To receive what he's offering? Didn't I do something to receive it? I've said this before, as a receiver myself in football, it was not a passive position. I had to do something to receive the ball. Okay, true. But what I love, the pushback here in Philippians, who gave you the strength to receive? Who gave you the will to want to in the first place? Hmm. Down deep, it's still the Lord working in us. Oh, so I had nothing to do with it? No, that's not what I'm saying. Don't overcorrect in our zeal to correct. There's a balance here. There's a contrary. And whether we're quoting Nephi with, it is by grace we are saved after all we can do. Be careful. It's not chronological. It's symbiotic. And I'm doing all that I can to reconcile my will to the will of the Father. That's the wax on, wax off. Okay, sand the floor and paint the fence. That's the karate kid. I'm not paying Miyagi back for my karate lessons. These are the karate lessons. But the fact that he invited me to come and is motivating me to do it. Miyagi was there training Danyo-san even when he was absent off somewhere fishing. Okay? You get a sense of what, what Paul is saying here. Balance. God's part. Our part. Don't put so much emphasis on God's part that you don't think you have to do anything. And you are now presuming upon his grace. Oh, God forbid. But at the other extreme, do not think that you are doing this all on your own, independent of God. Helping. Motivating. Persuading. Empowering breathing some life into you so that you, your will and the actions that follow are, are gifts from him as well. Okay? Aim for the balance there. It's, it's maybe hard to reach, but God is not our puppeteer, but neither are we independent of him in any aspect. He then says in verse 14, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Oh, there's attitude as everything. I used to tell that to my kids all the time till, they, till it ruined their attitude. <laughs> okay? But if you're promised blessings because of your actions, please don't lose them because of your attitude. Eliminate the murmurings. Get rid of the disputings. Because this is what 
the Lord wants us to become, verse 15, one of my favorites in, in Philippians, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. I don't know if there's a single verse that's better on being in the world but not of the world than that. I mean, in the world, yeah, we're stuck here. We are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But what are we asked to do here? I'll pick up and run, just hunker down and flee. I mean, just hide our light under a bushel out of fear that somebody might come and try to put it out. Oh no, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Be a bright and brilliant light. Shine as lights in the world. Because if you don't, then you are not blameless and you are certainly not harmless. It's interesting because here it almost, it, it, it doesn't seem like Paul is cautioning us against sins of commission. He, he does that plenty of, of places elsewhere in his letters. And here's these lists of sins that we've got to overcome and avoid. Here, it doesn't seem that. It's more sins of omission he's worried about. It's turning down the light. It's putting it on the dimmer switch. Because it just calls unnecessary attention. And the reason Paul's in prison is because he shined too brightly. <laughs> What's Paul's pushback? Shine. Be brilliant. Illuminate the world around you. You are desperately needed in that. And if you don't, then you can't be harmless and blameless. Even those two words are interesting, how to, how to compare the two. I think sometimes if I have done something wrong and they can point the finger and they blame me, Jared did this. I'm like, ah, oh, darn it, you're right. Or Jared didn't do this and it led me to that. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean, to. I'm to blame here. But I also wonder about harmless. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. You can't blame me. True. But was your action or your inaction harmful in some way, even when it was never intended on your part? Can we be more careful? I think Paul is, is asking us to ask ourselves that question. Can I be more careful? Can I be more committed and intentional in my discipleship? So that not only will I not be blamed for things, but I've done no harm. I've done no harm through my actions or my inactions. I'm doing the very best I can to shine. I've sometimes joked with mixed groups of students where in my own classes, many are from Utah and many the rest are from outside the, the, the LDS corridor. And ask them, what do you think it looks like? If you had some kind of night vision goggles where you could see spirituality, what would it look like? Having grown up in Southern California, I wonder if it would look like a like general darkness, a crooked and perverse nation, but with these points of brilliant light, saints shining as lights in the world. We just had a a Valencia Stake reunion in Utah Valley. And to see my old bishops and, and stake leaders and youth leaders and 
and f f uh, parents of my best friends. And it was amazing to come together. There's, there's a lot of us old Valencians that are now living in Utah Valley. And to think back of the Camelot years of my youth, we felt at times we were in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. There was opposition. We were a minority, but we knew who we were. And thinking back to the friends I grew up with, they were strong. We called ourselves the Mormon Battalion, and we were unapologetic. We were in your face, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were bold and probably a little overzealous uh, as, as youth missionaries, wanting to set examples, uh, but, but we tried to shine as lights in the world. And again, to spend time last weekend with brilliant points of light amidst the general darkness was, was a sweet memory. Then I asked the, the ones that, grow up, that grew up here in Utah, well, if you put on your night vision goggles, what would you see? And it's interesting as we wrestle with that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to put one above the other here. Okay, don't get me wrong. Uh, you can live the gospel wherever you happen to be. And my years of teaching seminary and institute and BYU here in Utah, I've seen some of the best, strongest, most brilliant, shining Latter-day Saints I've ever met. But I've also seen a lot of saints who go along with the gospel because of social momentum. I learned what cultural Christianity was when I lived in the South. But I know what cultural Mormonism, for lack of a better term, is during my time in Utah, where there are some that are just going with the flow because that's what everybody else does around here. And I've wondered, spiritually speaking, if Utah would be generally lighter than what other parts of the world might be. But is it a general glow, kind of diffused across the Wasatch, of people letting some light shine. But since everyone else has light too, I wouldn't want to blind anybody. I'm not trying to show off here. Oh, be careful. We need to shine as lights in the world, even where it's a majority of members, maybe especially, to provoke others to emulation, as Paul would say elsewhere, to help people see your light is as needed here as anywhere else. So shine, by all means, shine. You are sons and daughters of God, after all. <laughs> so no rebuke should, should get you to diminish your discipleship, dilute it, make it difficult to detect. No, shine. From there, verse 16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. That's all that Paul has ever wanted to do. Just serve others. Just share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to rejoice. He wants to serve and sacrifice for other people's sake. And so, if I'm in prison, well, all the better. I will rejoice in that. And even from a distance, since I can't be present, even in my absence, what will I do? I'll send you a letter. I will hold forth the word of life. It's here for the taking. And if you'll just come and partake. This is Lehi extending the fruit of the tree of life in hopes that you'll come and partake of it. 
We can do that in so many different aspects of life and in so many different ways. Hold forth the words of life. Come and get it. (laughs) Dinner's ready. In verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you. Remember Paul and Timothy are writing this letter, and I can't come, I'm under house arrest, but Timothy can. And I'm really hoping, I'm trusting the Lord will send him to you soon. That I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. I mean, uh, Epaphroditus brought the letter and let me know how things were going. I'm thrilled about that, but I'm, I'm always interested in an update. So maybe Timothy can go and then come back. I'd hate Epaphroditus to keep having to make the, the trip. But if I can get good news, if I can be comforted by knowing your state, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Now, what Paul just described in in that fairly long passage is not every missionary is created equal. And not every disciple is as devoted as everyone else. Timothy, oh, rock star. Timothy's amazing. He is like a son with the father. And if I'm kind of the senior companion and he's the junior companion, oh, my boy, my boy Timothy, he's a chip off the old block. And he's one I can completely trust. I want to send him to you to get me caught up and and share the gospel with you and, and build up your faith, just like I would if I could come. And I'm hoping that I can come eventually also, okay? But the problem is, not everyone's a Timothy, let alone everyone being a Paul. That's what he said in the middle of this. I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for you. Some, remember what he said earlier in this. It's really interesting, this, this little thread that runs throughout some of the, the message to the Philippians. Some people are preaching the gospel out of strife. Some are doing it out of envy. Some are being offensive and uh, hey, I'll t- if they're teaching Jesus, better than nothing, maybe. But uh, I just wish everyone were doing it out of sincerity. I wish I had more junior companions that thought like me, that I could completely trust with this. But unfortunately, some seek their own instead of seeking first the kingdom of God. I've had a few TAs in my time that I can trust with just about anything. It's so nice to have someone you can delegate responsibility to and not have to look over their shoulder the whole time. Then you just run with it. And to be able to reassure the students, if you have questions about things uh, and, and it's more kind of day-to-day, your grades and stuff like that, if you want to come talk shop, come and let's talk the gospel. But if you're wondering about grade or you missed a, uh, an assignment or whatever, talk to the TA. Divide and conquer here. I can't do everything. But I trust my teaching assistant. I trust what they will be able to do. And their decision most likely is going to be exactly what I would decide. They know me well enough to do that. And for Paul to feel that way about Timothy is amazing news. The fact he doesn't feel that way about everybody mm, should be a wake-up call to us all. What kind of missionary am I? What kind of disciple, servant? How do I serve in my callings? Am I the type that Paul would trust as a like-minded son or daughter? Or am I seeking my own, and can't really be trusted with the kinds of assignments and callings and missions 
that the Lord reserves for ones he can completely trust. In verse 25, Paul then says, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Remember, he's the one that brought the, the money and donations in the first place. He's now sending Epaphroditus back home to Philippi with the letter. I thought it necessary to send him to you, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier. That's a great description. Just a brothers in bonds, or brothers in arms in this case. A fellow soldier. But your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. So again, thank you for sending these kind donations in his hands to me. I'm sending him back to you. And you'll rejoice in what he's bringing. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You see, this messenger, this fellow soldier and fellow servant, when Epaphroditus had made the journey from wherever, or, or excuse me, from Philippi to wherever Paul was in prison, at some point during his stay with Paul, he became sick to the point of, I mean, he was on death's doorstep. And, and Paul was incredibly worried about this. He's, he was sorrow upon sorrow about this. Thankfully, Epaphroditus made it and he got better to the point that he could then go back to Philippi with this letter and the good news from Paul. But you get a sense of fellow servants, and in some ways this helps oh, round out the reality of Paul's mission, that there's companions, and some that he gets along with, and some that he doesn't, and some that he trusts, and others that he, do, that he can't. I mean, it sounds like the mission field. I remember once going to, walking into a mission president's office and seeing all of the the pictures of the missionaries on the board and I turned to the mission president and just kind of chuckled a little bit and said, do you ever stand here and look at all these faces and think to yourself, but I could have sworn they raised the bar. <laughs> and we both laughed a little because we know human nature. He said, oh no, well, I've got great missionaries. And yes, of course, of course he did, but they're not all created equal. And Epaphroditus was a great one. Timothy was an amazing one. There were some who struggled. Some Paul couldn't fully trust. And we'll see more evidence of that in other epistles as well. But I guess that just leaves us with the choice. What kind of servant will I be? Okay. Then, verse 28, Paul ends this part of the epistle by saying, I sent him, Epaphroditus, therefore the more carefully. I mean, he was still recovering from his sickness after all. That when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. So receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. This is a great missionary. Hold, hold him up like that. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. And careful about that last phrase. That sounds almost snarky on Paul's part. Like, hey, at least Epaphroditus showed up because you didn't. He supplied your lack of service. No, Paul's not being snarky. He loves the Philippian saints. We saw that back in chapter 1. What he's saying there is simply, you couldn't all come. I'm sure you would have been willing. You would have loved to. And I would have loved to squeeze you all into the cell with me. A little uh, reunion of the Philippi First Ward. But since that was impossible, and most of you couldn't travel that distance, you sent Epaphroditus to do what you wanted and were willing to do yourselves. But you were just unable. Okay, So bless him. Bless you. I love you all. 
And I know you love Epaphroditus. So take good care of him when he gets home. I hope he's, I hope he's feeling all right. Okay. Now from there, chapter 3. Oh, so far we're halfway through this, first, this, this letter. And we get a sense of what Paul is going through, what Epaphroditus has gone through, what he's hoping the saints are willing to go through. Right? Make you bold through my bonds. Christ was willing to condescend. Epaphroditus was willing to condescend. He practically died on this mission of mercy. I'm willing to condescend. I'm stuck in prison. Let that mind be in you. Are you willing to go through hard things as well? Because if you are, then press forward with faith. You can do this. And as we pivot now, chapter 3, that's going to be Paul's main message. He says in verse 1, Finally, my brethren. Finally? You still have two more chapters. I know, but we're moving in that direction. So let me just, this is my, what I'm really trying to focus on in this letter. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. If I can be happy here in prison, surely you guys can find some ways to rejoice back in Philippi. I don't care about the opposition you face. Well, I do. But <laughs> get over it, okay? Let your face show that the gospel brings joy. Rejoice in it. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. It's interesting that to write the same things is this sense of Paul, yeah, I'm repeating myself. Some of the things I wrote to you, I've written to other branches. And sure enough, by now, there are certain themes we have seen come up over and over throughout the epistles of Paul. So be it. He's writing the same things. It's not grievous to him, he says. For you it is safe. I am trying to rivet your attention by this repetition. I'm trying to make sure the water gets to the end of every row. And so please forgive me if I repeat myself. President, ben, no, President Hinckley joked about this once in a general conference talk. And he's like, you know how long I've been giving conference talks? And, y- and yet you people expect me to say something new every six months? I mean, you'll listen to the same song on the radio over and over and over again. But oh no, you won't let us repeat ourselves? And he, he was laughing. It was a tongue-in-cheek. And then he proceeded to repeat himself and give a, a, a sermon that he had largely given earlier in his ministry. Okay, Paul is doing something similar here. It's, it's safe for you. You need it. And it's not grievous to me. shouldn't be grievous to you either. Now, here's some strong language to start it. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now, I've seen... Oh, kind of missionaries joke about that first caution. Beware of dogs. And yeah, sometimes that's important in the mission field. I saw some scary ones in Puerto Rico. But Paul is not cautioning them against three different things here. He's cautioning them against one thing, but describing it in three different terms. He calls them evil workers in the middle. And in fact, he's so frustrated by their evil, he calls them dogs to start. So these are not canines. These are human beings, but these are dirty dogs, those evil workers. Paul's talking some smack here, okay? He's frustrated because they are of the concision, or we would say the circumcision. Mmm, there's the Judaizers back in town. And here they've come telling Gentile converts, and that's what Philippi is filled with, that you have to pass through Judaism on the way. And you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to keep the law of Moses. And it's like, guys, come on. Didn't we settle this at the Jerusalem conference? Didn't we make that compromise with James's help? Peter's ratifying authority? No, you don't have to be circumcised. So anybody who comes and shames you into thinking you are second-class citizens instead of fellow citizens with the saints, 
Anyone who wants to keep you across that middle wall of partition, right? Foreigners and strangers, all that we learned last week in Ephesians. Those that want to keep doing that to you. Those of the circumcision, they are dirty dogs doing an evil work on you. So beware of them. Cast that dog out of town. By the way, in our days, dog is man's best friend. In the ancient world, dog was anything but. In the ancient world, a dog, there was like no value there. And so to call someone a dog like this, Paul is trying to put them in their place. Remember, as a Jew himself, by birth and background, he gets so frustrated with people with the same background who have not been able to see in Jesus the Messiah that they'd all been hoping for. Okay? They didn't get their road on Damascus experience. And so Paul's trying to shine some light, even if he shines it right in their eyes. Okay, you dirty dog. He goes on pushing back against them by saying in verse 3, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. I mean, those people that are, that are trying, those dirty dogs that are trying to get you to be circumcised, that's just an outward circumcision anyway. It's the inner one that matters. And that's what every Gentile convert has done. They have undergone a circumcision of the heart. It's a much more delicate surgery. It's real change. It's transformation in Christ. This is spirit over letter. This is heart over flesh. So those that are so proud of their circumcision, so proud of their Jewish background, let them know that they're the uncircumcised. And you're the circumcised in the way that circumcision actually matters. But hey, fine. If you want to talk about the letter, oh, I can go there with you. Verse 4 through 6, how's this for, for Jewish credentials? Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. It's like, if you want to go there, fine, let's go there. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, oh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day, just like you should. Of the stock of Israel, just like you claim. Of the tribe of Benjamin, and that's the tribe of the original king of Israel himself, Saul. And oh yeah, that's my name too. Oh, and Hebrew of the Hebrews am I. As touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I mean, Paul is flexing his muscles there. He, because he's being doubted. His commitment is being called into question. At least his earlier commitment to Judaism. Said, ah, he was probably only oh, a half-baked Israelite anyway. He didn't really know what, he's, what he left behind. So, of course, he, he was swayed by this message of Christianity. Of course, he was drawn away from Judaism. He was only half in anyway. And Paul is like, how dare you? I was all in. I was more in than you. I was a Pharisee. Taught at the feet of Gamaliel himself. I was hardcore. Holding coats at the stoning of Stephen. Getting permission from Jewish authorities to go as far away as Damascus to round up Christians and drag them back so that the Sanhedrin could condemn them to death. Oh, I'm, I'm more Jewish than any of you Jews out there. And yet I saw the light. I am a Messianic Jew who came to know the Messiah. Okay, this is, oh, the doctor who displays his diploma on the side of the office. And in case you ever wonder, and oh, I don't know, I might get a second opinion, he points back to it and says, check their credentials. Did they go to as good a a medical school as I did. 
Paul is so confident in, in what he knew when he left it all behind. Okay? Trust my conversion. I was all in then. I'm all in now. I saw the light, so can you. So verse 7, But what things were gain to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now, Paul is still... Oh, flexing some muscles here. He's, he, that, that last, those last few verses really got the adrenaline pumping. And he's in their face. And do you have any idea? Because he's trying to defend his own people. He's trying to defend his converts from those Judaizers that are making them feel less than. He's like, no, push back. Don't let them cow you into, into feeling like you have to go back through Judaism. You don't. You're free. The gospel has made you that. And he's so frustrated. It's like, I'm willing to give up everything. I did. I had it all in Judaism, but I counted it as nothing when I found the full gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the parable of the Pearl of Great Price. And Paul knew his pearls. He knew Judaism and every gem that was preserved there. But when he found the gospel of Jesus Christ, oh, it's a pearl, so similar to the pearls that have been preparing me to recognize a pearl unlike any other. And I'm willing to sell all the, the pearls I've previously purchased to be able to afford a pearl of greatest price. You sense his willingness to sacrifice all things? But again, the adrenaline <laughs> behind that final phrase, that's just dung. And it's a strong word for excrement, for garbage, for rubbish, for just worthless, nothing things. And that's what I see in my previous life or my previous profession. And this would be President Nelson saying, oh, world-renowned heart surgeon? That's nothing. That's less than nothing. That's garbage. That was, that was dung to me. Whoa, you don't have to be that. Every doctor in the world is like, um, we're, we're trying to do good things. It's like, I know. But I'm trying to do something more important here. To the fact that an Elder Oaks could count the United States Supreme Court dung compared to the apostleship. Wow. Or President Irene could leave behind Stanford. Originally, he left Stanford to go to Rick's College. And the story there is amazing. I mean, it really does put in perspective how the Lord feels about his children there in Rexburg, Idaho, uh, BYU-Idaho now. The, the, as Elder Irene described the story, when he was asked, would you consider uh, being the, the, pres the new president? We're, we're looking for a new president for the churches, for, for Rick's College. And Elder Irene, at the time, Professor Dr. Irene of Stanford Business School, tenured professor, living the dream, Palo Alto, California, would you consider your name has been recommended as a possible candidate for the presidency of Rick's College? President Iron ha actually had to ask, what's Rick's College? He didn't even know. Uh, a little embarrassed, Elder Maxwell, the Church Commissioner of Education, said, well, it's the church's junior college in Rexburg. And <laughs> President Irene, or brother Dr. Irene said, where's Rexburg? He didn't even know that. 
I mean, he wasn't from Utah or Idaho. He had been on the coasts growing up, right? And it's, you're asking me to leave Palo Alto, California to go to Rexburg, Idaho? You're asking me to leave Stanford to go to a junior college I've never heard of? Uh, yeah, when you put it that way. <laughs> well, he prayed about it, knew it was the Lord's will, and considered a pretty sweet gig dung to be able to do the work of the Lord. Actually, years later, he was asked by, I mean, President Irene, Harvard MBA, right? And Harvard and MIT and Stanford all in his resume. Yeah, big businesses are going to be seeking his, his help. And he got an offer that he couldn't refuse, or at least so the company thought, to come, I think, to L.A. and help run a, comp uh, a big company. And here's the, the house of the person that you're going to be replacing. And here's the cars and here's the, the, the benefits. And it was like an offer you can't refuse, really. I mean, blow his mind. Well, he called his uncle, who happened to be Spencer W. Kimball, and explained what he was being offered. It's like, I'm here at Rick's College, but this is on the table. And I've been at Rick's for a while, and I'm wondering if this is the next. I mean, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life here. So is this the next step in my career path? And President Kimball just said, oh, wow, that sounds like an amazing offer. Well, let us know what you decide. Click. And that was it. And Brother, President Iron was like, really? Am I that replaceable? You don't even care if I take the job? I mean, well, I guess it's up to me. Well, really, it was up to the Lord. So he prayed about it. And again, he felt the Lord say, I'm going to let you stay here in Rexburg a little longer. And the way President Elder Iron described it, it's like, it wasn't, please stay for me. You got to do this. It was, no, I'm going to let you stay in Rexburg. So, uh, Brother Iron called President Kimball and said, well, um, I decided to stay in Rexburg, stay at Rick's, instead of taking the job in L.A. And, <laughs> oh, as only President Kimball could, or maybe as only an uncle would, he said, oh, how? Really? You're going to, what did they offer you again? And Brother Iron had to explain, like, well, this, the, the millions and the house and the cars and blah, blah, blah. And oh, and making it all the harder on, on young Hal Iron. Uh, and, and he said, wow, that's incredible. What an offer. And you're not going to take it? President Kimball asked, kind of pushing things. This is just making it harder and harder on poor Brother Iron. And Brother Iron said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to take it. And then getting incredibly serious all of a sudden, all of a sudden, President Kimball said to his nephew, Hal, do you think you're making a sacrifice? Hmm, calling me out. Now on the inside, I imagine Brother Irony felt like, yeah, you better believe it, like a six-figure one. But mustering his faith, Brother Irene said to President Kimball, no, it's no sacrifice. To which President Kimball simply said, you're right, and then hung up on him. Wow. Count all things but dung to go serve in the cause of Christ. Elder Bednar made a similar sacrifice more recently. When he left the University of Arkansas, where he was an award-winning professor, published in the business world and making headlines, and when asked, would you consider taking the reins at Rick's College? 
He said, yes. But then when he was asked, what would this mean for your career if you left professor of business to become a, the president of a junior college? What would it mean for your career? And very honestly and unapologetically, young brother Bednar said, it would effectively end it. It would destroy my career in the business world. And that kind of surprised the Church Commissioner of Education that was having the interview and said, um, okay, wow. Um, well, is that a problem? <laughs> Probably swallowing heart. And Brother Bednar simply said, not at all. It's not a problem. Wow, the end of a career. Because then, then the Church Commissioner said, well, you realize that this is, not, this is not a lifelong appointment. So if this ends the career you have now, and you only do this for, I don't know, five to ten years, however long we ask, what are you going to do afterwards? And Brother Bednar said, I have no idea. And then again, the church commissioner asked, is that a problem? And again, Elder, I, or Elder Bednar, Brother Bednar said, not at all. Talk about faith. Talk about perspective. Oh, that old career that I spent so much time, and sweat and blood, blood, sweat and tears to get to. It's just dung compared to whatever the Lord would have me do to build his kingdom. Well, in some ways, Brother Bednar proved prophetic after his time at Ricks College. It, was, it did spell the end of Brother Irene's, excuse me, Brother Bednar's business career. And what was he going to do next? Oh, you're right, he had no idea. Because what did he do next? He was called to the apostleship. So yeah, no need to go back into the business world. You can now do the business of the kingdom of God. And he's been doing it ever since in incredible ways. They, I look at the apostles and prophets, and they all considered whatever they were doing, and they were doing amazing things, they considered it dumb compared to what the Lord was asking them to engage in, in building his kingdom. Amazing. Uh, General Conference, take their words seriously. They come at a cost. Then, verse 9 through 11, and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, and that's what they're pushing on you. Go live the old legalistic law of Moses, but no. That's, I'm not trying to establish my own righteousness that way. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's the pivot that Paul made on the road to Damascus. It's the pivot that he's asking every former Jew, current Christian to make. And for you Gentiles, you don't have to pass through the law because that's not what brings righteousness. Your faith in Christ is what brings the righteousness of God into your life. And what does that righteousness bring you to? Next verse. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Or as the JST says, the resurrection of the just since we don't just want any old resurrection. We want the right one. <laughs> we want the resurrection of the righteous. And that's what Paul is banking on. Anything else is just dumb. Anything else is just garbage. I don't, it's, I don't have the time for it. But what, what is he coming to know as he sets his sights on that righteous resurrection? I'm coming to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He's raised me out of my former life. He's raised me out of the prison of self-pity. That's why I'm here behind bars with a smile on my face. 
In fact, I'm not alone here. I have entered the fellowship of his sufferings. I mentioned at the beginning of our lesson this week that there's a fellowship that comes in shared suffering. And when you've been through something and you meet someone else that's been through the same thing, it's like fellow cancer survivors or cancer sufferers, uh, parents of children who have strayed, uh, mental health issues, chronic illness, you name it, there is an amazing fellowship. I've been through that too. Or I'm going through it right alongside you. But notice, it's not just the fellowship of the sufferings or fellowship of sufferings. It's the fellowship of His sufferings. As I... Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if they persecute you and say all manner of evil falsely for my name's sake, blessed are you, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. In other words, you're in good company. You're in prophetic company. Maybe Jesus was being humble because he could have said, you're in my company. And I am inviting you into the fellowship of my sufferings. It's one of the places we can come to know him best. Paul understood it beautifully. In verse 12, he then says, Not as though I had already attained. I, I haven't gotten that righteous resurrection yet. I, I'm not done here. I haven't ab- attained where I, what, I, what I want. Either we're already perfect, so I'm not there yet either. I'm not where I want to be. I've got a lot of growing up to do. But I follow after. So I'm still going. I'm not giving up. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Now, again, thank you, Paul, for wordsmithing. Okay? And he's playing with the language here because he wants to use words in more of an ironic way. The New International Version irons that out a bit. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. With that, I kind of sense a, a runner in the relay. And, and I, I'm trying to, or Jesus is trying to hand the baton to me. He's trying to help me grow up in him. He's offering me his glory and his grace. And he's so serious about me taking hold of it that he will take hold of me until I'm able to do so. Can you picture that? Can you picture the, the, the previous runner so intent on you grabbing the baton that he just holds you, almost picks, up, picks you up and runs with you through the passing lane <laughs> so that you can fully grip the baton and then run with it the next leg? That's how serious the Lord is about all of this. He apprehends you so that you can apprehend what he's offering. Paul then says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. So, again, I'm not there yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That is such a beautiful verse. I'm not there yet, my friends. But I'm I'm trying to get there. And you're not there yet either. Don't worry about that. So can I share with you some of my, some advice that has helped me keep a positive perspective on my own weakness versus my hoped for strength, where I am in the process since I'm not there yet. For some of you, that would be absolutely devastating. And you would feel hopeless as a result. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. For all of you toxic perfectionists out there, especially those Judaizers that are pushing law and you're not living up to expectation and 
You, you haven't worked out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's all on you. You have to do it and check every box. Ah, that's paralyzing. How do you get past that? Every time I think I'm not good enough, and I never will be, take Paul's advice and forget what's behind you. Instead, focus on what's before and reach for it. Stretch. You're not being held hostage by your past. Your future is glorious. So what to do in the present? Reach. Stretch. Extend. Progress. Grow. Try. Believe. And you will end up pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. When my boys were little, it was always fun to watch them jump and reach as high as they could in hopes that a fingernail might brush up against the bottom of the basketball net. Now, they were far from dunking, <laughs> but they reached high for the high prize and the high calling. And with that upward reach, that outward stretch, they kept getting better. It's amazing to watch. My, my nephew is an amazing basketball player, and, and he went from reaching, he, he's tall too, that helps, uh, and really athletic. He's, he went from reaching to touch the net, to reaching to touch the rim, to reaching to be able to dunk the basketball, and then pretty soon to be able to do dunks like no one with Halverson genes should be able to do. <laughs> and yet he does. Amazing. We're all growing up in God. And the best way to do that is to learn from the past instead of feeling trapped by it. You want to talk about being imprisoned. That's not a cell that Paul ever spent time in. Nope, that's gone. Forget the things behind. Reach the things that are forward. And you'll end up getting there. Okay, Beautiful, beautiful attitude. Next, he says in verse 15, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, and perfect here again is just mature, fully developed, so if you're there, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, so if you can't get your mind to wrap around this reality, then God shall reveal even this unto you. I love Paul's faith in that. That's okay. If you don't quite get it, don't worry. If you're off, the Lord will let you know you're off. Just please be open to course correction. It'll come. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Please hold on to the progress you've already made and then keep progressing forward. In verse 17, brethren, be followers together of me. I'm trying to do the same thing. So let's just follow my lead. We're in this together. Fellowship of his sufferings and fellowship with fellow sufferers. And mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. In other words, others that are following that same kind of an example. Follow true messengers, true prophets, true missionaries. People like Timothy and Epaphroditus, not like those others that are doing it for the wrong reasons. He says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, or JST, who glory in their shame, who mind earthly things. Remember, not all missionaries are created equal. And so beware of the hypocrites, the counterfeiters, the deceivers, 
the ones that are feeding their belly instead of focusing on the spirit, the ones that are aiming toward destruction instead of edification, the ones that feel shame instead of a clear conscience and are building earthly kingdoms to themselves rather than a heavenly kingdom to God. Finally, verse 20 and 21, for our conversation, or again, our lifestyle. The Greek here actually is better uh, translated citizenship, like those Ephesian fellow citizens with the saints. Our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. How's that for Paul looking forward to the resurrection and to the second coming, reaching up and pressing forward to a glorious future? And if that's our future, what should our present look like? Can you be a little more practical now? Give me some practical advice. Here I am reaching for that high calling. Beautiful metaphor, but how do I live the gospel. Remember last week in Ephesians, the first three chapters were, this is the gospel plan. This is, this is the story of Jesus. And then the second half, chapter four, five, and six, here's how you implement it. Okay? This is where the rubber hits the road. Well, chapter four of Philippians, this is his last, last chapter. He's got to give it to us now or forever hold his peace. And so how do I live the gospel? It's in this chapter that we will see what the 13th article of faith calls the admonition of Paul. He is admonishing, urging, counseling, persuading us to live a certain way. And it's the Christian way. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. Oh, I feel that way about my students. Do you feel that way about the people you serve? Love them? Long for them? Joy in them? You're my crown. And what's he pleading with them to do? To stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche. These, these are two sister saints there in Philippi. It's likely that they had the churches were meeting in their homes, house churches for these sweet sisters. That they be of the same mind in the Lord. So don't just agree with each other. Agree with each other in the Lord. And let's make sure there is that unity of the faith that we're working toward. Okay, Stand fast. Be united. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. These are beloved brothers and celestial sisters that Paul has been working with, knows from his days in Philippi on that second missionary journey, hopes to encourage them even from afar. Keep, stay, stay strong, stay true, stay one. Keep building the kingdom. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. We sing that almost exact line in our hymns. And sometimes we do have to be reminded to rejoice, especially when we're in prison, especially when things are hard. But Paul, cheer up, you've got the gospel. It's the good news, so act like it. Let your moderation be known unto all men. So yeah, rejoice, but keep it in control, will you? <laughs> there's, there's a moderation in this. For the Lord is at hand. And I love that, 
that reality that Paul is pressing upon them. The time is short. Make your time count. Be careful for nothing, he says. And that's the kind of carefulness that Jesus condemned, like when you're over-anxious about something. The way Martha was wired, right? It's like you're careful about many things. You don't have to be that careful, okay? It's just what, what Paul is doing here so far. It's just kind of these bullet points to work on your joy and your moderation. Know the timetable. Be careful for nothing. He goes on, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. A beautiful description of prayer. It's real prayer is supplication, asking for things. It's also thanksgiving. It's making those things known to God. An amazing woman once described prayer as one of three different types. There is either the prayer of help, the prayer of thanks, or the prayer of wow. And you get a sense of all three types there. And the peace of God, Paul says, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And what a beautiful description of peace that is. The kind that passes all understanding. That's, there's two ways to take that, but maybe more. One is there is a peace you just, you're, it's so amazing, you're just not going to get it. I can't explain it. You have to feel it. You have to experience it for yourself. It's a peace that passeth all understanding. But I also wonder if it's, sometimes in your trials, what you're asking for is understanding. I want to know why I'm going through this. And that's totally normal and natural. We often ask why in those circumstances. But if you could only have one thing or the other, and couldn't have both. Sometimes he gives you both. But if you had to pick between peace or understanding, it's like, okay, now I know why I'm going through this, but uh, I'm suffering and it's hard and it stinks. Or, you know what? I don't know why I'm going through it, but somehow the Lord is softening the blow. And I'm at peace. I trust I trust what I'm going through. I trust that all things work together for good to those that love God. And I love God. In fact, I know He loves me. I'm feeling that wrapped up in the peace that He's providing. No, I don't understand what I'm going through. That's okay. I'm going through it with God. I'm in the fellowship of His sufferings. There is a peace that passes, surpasses, goes beyond understanding. And, oh, if I get there, I'm okay if I don't understand all the reasons why I'm going through what I'm going through. I was actually blown away recently by an email I got from one of you. Right after we talked about comfort amid affliction in 2 Corinthians, and this incredible sister described some of the things she was going through in the moment, like at the, at exa- as we spoke, that were absolutely brutal. And yet she said, I can't stop reading 2 Corinthians. I just keep going over and over and over. And all those promises that the Lord gives to those who are suffering. Maybe, she'll, maybe she's due for a, a second round in Philippians this week. But she said, I'm feeling peace in such a surprising way. Like, I have no business feeling this okay about things. And I, but I know where that peace is coming from. 
it, it, she didn't use this language. I'm sure she will now from Philippians 4. But she was feeling a peace that passed her understanding. Because she didn't understand why she was going with that. She was going through brutal things. But her faith came through so loud and clear in her email. It strengthened me. I shared some of it with my ward uh, during Gospel Doctrine when we were talking about some of these things. And it strengthened them. Don't worry, I didn't share any names or, or all of the details. It, but again, this woman's strength was strengthening other people. In some ways, it's a chance for us to consecrate even our trials so they can bless other people around us. And that's what Paul has done. He, that's what the Lord does. He gives us peace beyond our understanding. Then verse 8, Finally, brethren, and this will sound familiar to all of you who memorized the 13th article of faith when you were little kids so you could graduate from primary. They don't do that anymore uh, in most wards I've been in. But back in the day, if you, if you were going to finally get beyond the, the primary program and enter young women's or young men's, you had to quote an article of faith. Most people quoted the first because it was the easiest. Others quoted the 13th because it's the longest and they wanted to show off. But those who did the 13th, this is what you got, where, where we got it from. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, Joseph Smith's version in the 13th article of faith is a little shorter, a little tighter. But this is where we get the admonition of Paul. We believe and we hope to live according to that admonition. Whatsoever, whether we found it originally within the church or somewhere outside it. Remember, we're trying to gather together all things in one in Christ. Uh, if we're smelling beautiful flowers in other people's gardens, wonderful. If you're learning it in other faiths or through ancient philosophy, if you're finding it in fiction or nonfiction, in movies or books or plays or whatever it might be, if it, if it deserves any of these descriptions, true and honest and just and pure and lovely and good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, don't just acknowledge it when present. As we say in the 13th article of faith, we seek after these things. Go out and search for it. Okay? Find it wherever it might be. Then verse 9, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. How's that for the pragmatic approach to the gospel? Live it. Do it. It's not enough to, just have, been, to have been taught. Great, you learned you received, you heard, big deal. Do something with it. Let the rubber hit the road. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, Paul says, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He's back to the I mean, speaking of pragmatism, the Philippian saints have been incredibly pragmatic, practical. They gathered. It wasn't just like, oh, wait, we heard that Paul was in prison. Mm, that's so sad. I really feel for him. We should do something about it. Oh, let's pray. That's awesome. Definitely pray. But is there anything more tangible we can do? 
oh, well, why don't we like pass around the plate? And he gave us so, so much by way of spiritual things. Let's give him something by way of temporal things. It might so we can't get him out of prison, but maybe we can soften the blow. Epaphroditus, you doing anything for the next couple months? <laughs> can you go on a trip for us? Take it to him. And Paul is so grateful for that. Your care has flourished again. You took such good care of me when I was with you there in Philippi. And you're still doing it now. I'm so grateful for you. But you know what? Even if you hadn't, that's okay. I love the way he ends that passage. In whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. Paul overcame the around the next corner syndrome that has us convinced that, oh, of course, I'm justified in not being happy now, but I'll be happy since a certain blessing or a certain something will come right around the next corner. And then we get there and it's not there. Or maybe it is. Either way, we're still not content. Oh, because there's something even bigger and better around the next corner. We keep rounding the block, waiting for joy to kick in. And Paul's like, let joy come right now. Be content in present circumstances. Whatever those circumstances might be. Mine aren't exactly great from the outside. But on the inside, oh, I've got everything I need. It's like the kid who's grounded, but they have everything in their room that they ever wanted anyway. It's like, oh, well, that defeated the purpose. <laughs> Picture these Romans like, we can't get to this guy. Huh. Wonder why. Well, contentment will do that. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 12, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. I've been down to the depths. I've been up to the heights. It's all good. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. That's the contentment he was talking about. It's all good. And here's the ultimate reason why. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That's the key. That's the, the youth motto this year. It shouldn't just be for the youth. It should be for us all. Of course I can handle want, because Christ will strengthen me. Of course I can make it if I'm hungry, because Christ will provide. He is the bread of life. Of course I'm not down on my luck. Christ is here in the fellowship of suffering, strengthening me every step of the way. Notwithstanding, he says, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. So, just one last reminder, like, I, I'm, don't, take me, don't take this in the wrong way. I'm so grateful for your kindness. Uh, I am grateful for horizontal strengthening as well. But it's the vertical kind that matters most. As long as I have Jesus, I have everything I need. He strengthens me to be able to do anything. Verse 15 then, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Of all the other branches I'd planted, yours was the one that grew up with, so, with more fruit to share with others than any other. So no other church, but you guys. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. I'd already gone forward to Thessalonica. We'll see that in the Thessalonian letters in, uh, next week. But to see what you in Philippi did, you sent, you sent again, you were always concerned about me. Blessed are you for that. Not because I desire a gift. I'm not saying this to like, oh, and hey, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Are you going to send some more gifts as well? No, I, that's not what I'm asking. 
but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. I'm just trying to bear witness of your unmatched goodness and generosity. Put that on their account because they're doing so much to bless those around them. Finally, verse 18, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Makes me wonder, is he talking about the gift that Epaphroditus brought? All the self-sacrifice of you wonderful saints in Philippi, thank you for that. Or is he referring to himself? I don't know what's going to come of this prison term. Will I be freed to be able to continue my preaching? Or is this it for me? Will I be martyred? Will I be the sweet smell of sacrifice? Is God preparing to lay me on the altar? If so, so be it. He prays, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Remember last week, all the examples of heavenly riches the Lord possesses. Now unto God and your Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You've given your all. Now may the Lord give his all to you. And you'd think Paul was finished there because it did have his amen. But knowing these Philippian saints and loving them so much, he couldn't help himself. Had to tack on just a few last lines. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. <laughs> even, even some of them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And there's his final amen. One that is... Oh, giving the seal of approval on his gratitude to his fellow saints. Oh, Philippians, you're good folks. You've done amazing things. You're living the gospel. You are being strengthened in the Lord. And I hope I can be counted among your number. To review what we've seen here, I'm going to cut this in. This lesson comes in two parts. And so I, having finished Philippians, I want to review the beautiful one-liners from Philippians. And then at the end of this week's material, we'll just, it won't be a cumulative exam, okay? We will have a second set of one-liners to, to remind us of what, what Colossians uh, teaches. But here's the Philippians set. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, waxing confident by my bonds. I am set for the defense of the gospel. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, a name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The fellowship of his sufferings. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. The peace of God which passeth all understanding. If there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. For such a short letter, four chapters is all, Paul packed it with powerful truths. And it's my prayer, as it was Paul's, that we can squeeze into the cell with him and come to know not only this incredible apostle, but the Lord for whom he was suffering. For any of you who are going through difficult things currently, I pray you are finding the peace that passeth understanding. I hope that you are rejoicing in the fellowship of Christ's suffering and coming to know him through all that you're enduring. More than anything, to those in those circumstances or those of us who are not yet in them or are taking a reprieve between imprisonments, I pray that we may rejoice in the Lord of condescension, knowing that he came down to be like us so that he could make us more like him, that he poured out his divinity, but he poured some of it into us so that through Christ, through the strength that comes through his enabling grace, we can do all things. Philippians is a tough act to follow. Yeah, it's such an amazing little letter that we just studied, and yet somebody has to follow it. So, well, why not the Colossians? Or the Colossians, or the Colossians, or however you want to pronounce it. I've heard them all. It's a foreign language, so we're just trying to approximate it in English as best we can. But there were saints in a city called Colossae. And it's in Asia Minor, so we're heading east from Philippi. And the saints there, uh, Paul himself never went to Colossae. So he doesn't know these people as familiarly as he did the Philippian saints. But someone else has planted the kingdom there. And, and Paul, as an apostle, is still concerned about saints across the kingdom, wherever they might be. And so he's going to write a brief letter. This one's only four chapters as well. But a brief letter, again, from his own imprisonment. We don't know all the details about the imprisonment, where exactly Paul was when he writes this. But... Under house arrest, he is sending the word forth because it cannot be bound even though he is. He wants the saints in Colossae to know of God's love for them. He's trying to encourage them in their faith so they can stay as strong and steadfast as they need to. I bet that he wishes he could go and encourage them in person. But since he can't, he'll write them. And thankfully he does since he can't come to us personally either. But we do have his words, and they're incredible. He begins, as he normally does, with his brief salutation, and says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, 
that the letter's coming from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. So just like Philippians, Timothy's there too, uh, ready to give a second witness to everything Paul is writing. And they're writing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's normal salutation, always extending grace and peace wherever he can. In verse 3 he says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints. These incredible converts are living both of the two great commandments. Okay? They are loving God, they are serving their neighbor. And where does all that faith and love come from? Well, Paul says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. It's the gospel that gives us that hope. And it's that hope that leads to the kind of faith and love Paul had been describing. Speaking of that hope, speaking of that truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. Or as the JST says it, as in all generations of the world. So whether we're talking about space or time, this is the new and everlasting covenant. It's been newly dispensed upon the earth, but it's supposed to spread everywhere. And not only spread, it's supposed to bring forth fruit. That's what Paul says. So it's in all the world, it bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. I love what Paul is seeing, saying here, right at the beginning of this beautiful letter. It's working. I wasn't there to plant, but that's okay. Somebody else planted, someone else is going to water. God is the one that gives the increase, right? That's what he said to the Corinthians. But here to the Colossians, you're, you guys are doing amazing, aren't you? The, you're being fruitful in the gospel, which is exactly what the good gardener intended. Do you remember what Jesus said right before Gethsemane to the apostles? This is John chapter 15, verse 16, kind of putting them in their place. He says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. And I get a sense that that's how Paul is feeling about these Colossian saints. God chose you, and, and you chose him back. He blessed you to be fruitful, and that your fruit should remain. We're going to see that as an underlying theme in this, in this letter. But I'm seeing, I've, I've heard of what's happening there in Colossae, and you're doing amazing things. Keep up the good work. In verse 7, As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. You see, it was Epaphras who planted this branch. Someone that Paul was more than content to send in his absence Epaphras was a dear fellow servant. There's so many people that I wish we knew more about, and Epaphras is one of them. But these Colossian saints, it's like, oh, that's our guy. He's the one that came and first introduced us to the gospel. He planted. Now it's Paul's turn to water. Either way, the Colossian saints are bringing forth fruit. Now verse 9 through 11. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, 
Paul wants them to get it. You're doing it, but do you understand what you're doing? I hope so. I hope that implementation of the will of God is filled with wisdom, spiritual understanding, because it helps you stay faithful longer when you understand why you're being faithful to begin with. He pleads with them that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Man, everything seems to be packed into one, that one little passage. Praying we'll know God's will, that we'll understand what we're supposed to be doing, that we'll embrace it with wisdom, that we'll implement it worthily and walk worthy of the fruit that God is sending our way. Fruits like long-suffering and joyfulness and patience. Are we growing along those lines? Are we reaping the fruits of the Spirit that the gospel has sown? That's a good sign that, that our roots are deep and extending even deeper. That we're tapping into the living water and it's bringing forth its life so that we can be fruitful. In verse 12, Paul says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us, or other translation, has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So often Paul has borne witness of the resurrection, as he should. He is a a special witness of the resurrection, having seen it with evidence of it with his own eyes on the road to Damascus but he is equally intent to bear witness of the atonement of Jesus Christ. He is the fount from which forgiveness flows. So, redemption, forgiveness, how do we enter the, how are we transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son? It's through his blood. Gethsemane, Calvary, it's all that Jesus did to bring us home. And with that in mind, how can you, how can I keep from singing? How can I not rejoice in the Lord that I love? And what Paul then does is, is exactly that. He rejoices in Christ. He sings of his Savior. When we were studying Philippians earlier, we saw in chapter 2 what was most likely some kind of ancient early Christian hymn that Paul was channeling to be able to rejoice in the condescension of Christ. Well, what the next few verses entails is something similar. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20 is another, most likely, another early Christian hymn. It's more poetic. It sounds a little less like Paul in terms of the flow of what he's saying. It does seem that he's pausing here having mentioned the grace of Christ, the blood that he shed for us, and he takes advantage of the opportunity to burst out in song. He just can't help it. And so again, cue the tabernacle choir. How can we keep from singing? And this is this magnificent song of the Savior. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, He's not saying that God is some intangible essence, but having fallen from his presence in Eden 
To us, he is invisible here on earth. But who is visible? Jesus. Remember when Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus responds, Philip, I've been with you all this time and you still don't get it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the image of the invisible God. There's never been a better example of like father, like son. Go on. He is the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. This is Jesus, the Lord of all. He is our all in all. And every good thing comes from him. The song continues in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Thank you, Tabernacle Choir. Thank you, Chorus of Angels. Thank you, early saints, raising your voices high to sing of Jesus. The way he's described there, he's made peace for us. Because of what he did on the cross, because of the blood that he spilled, we can be reconciled with the Father. That fullness that he poured out from premortality, that's the Philippians hymn, he's pouring into us. That his, within him, all fullness dwells. And he's trying to share that fullness with each of us. He's, he's trying to fill our empty spaces and he has enough and to spare. Now with that kind of faith and testimony of Jesus, what do we do from there? In verse 21, you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. And he's right about that. It's our sins that alienate us from God. It's our sins that make us revert back to our natural man's state. And that's the enemy to God that has always been. So have we been alienated? Have we become enemies because of our wicked works? Well, that's past. And remember to the Philippians, let the past stay behind you. Reach ahead to what lies before. That's exactly what he's pleading with the Colossian saints to do. He says, yet now, so forget the past. Now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, so again, it's his atoning death that is doing this, that is accomplishing this ministry of reconciliation. It's through his death that he can present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That's beautiful. It's not just innocence. That would be mere justification. This is true holiness, and that's sanctification. No blame, nothing to reprove you about. If... He says, hmm, so there's an if here? Well, yes, but notice what it is. How can I hold to this holiness? How can I remain unblameable and unreprovable? How can I attain sanctification and never let it slip? If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard.
and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. I love this passage. Grounded and settled. Elsewhere we saw words like grounded and rooted. We've talked about digging deep and founding or, and being built upon a foundation of prophets and apostles with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Here to these Colossian saints, are you grounded in God? Are you settled in the Savior? I mean, to be settled in where you picture you're, you're shaking the earth and packing it down so you want good, solid ground to build upon. And to be grounded there and settled there where I'm not going to move. Remember that was Paul's language? Despite all this opposition and persecution, none of these things move me. I'm not going to be scared away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. I can't be persecuted out of its path. No. I'm grounded. I'm settled. And that's the challenge. That is the challenge of our day. If we have obtained at some point to the hope of the gospel that he's describing here, are we still holding on to that hope? Or have we been moved? It's tragic that so many people that at one point were receiving this reconciliation, that were feeling grace and faith and forgiveness, somehow along the way, sometime along the way, forgot. And they have been moved away from these things. It is one thing to obtain. It's another thing to retain and maintain. And those are the ones that Paul is pleading with these saints to do. He, he's still pleading with the rest of us as well. He says in verse 24, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I've wondered, is he talking about People that are rejoicing, oh, that Paul's staying faithful through these sufferings? Or rejoicing that the gospel is spreading despite Paul's sufferings? Or is this a completely different kind of rejoicing? Almost cackling at the kinds of catastrophes that Paul is having to endure. Are they rejoicing in his sufferings like, <laughs> look what we're doing to you? Are these Roman soldiers? Are these, are these Jewish opposers? Are, they any, are these the people that have put him in the prison that he finds himself in? Well, if so be, fine, rejoice, because I'm rejoicing too. This is back, going back to what we saw in the letter to the Philippians, that, hey, if my suffering furthers the gospel, then by all means, lock me up and rejoice away. I'm rejoicing too. You see here where he says that they're rejoicing in my sufferings for you, they fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Interesting what he's saying. Filling up where I was behind. To the Philippians, he talked about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. But to fit into the fellowship, yeah, you got to suffer for him. And this verse suggests that Paul was feeling a little behind. A feeling, feeling a little underqualified. I was behind in those afflictions. I mean, yes, I was suffering, but had I suffered enough? I was... I was taking it on the chin for his body's sake, which is the church. I was trying to help the church and strengthen them through my bonds. That worked in Philippi. Is it working there in Colossae? Because if not, then keep heaping up the persecution. Keep filling up places where I'm behind. Oh, here's a part of me that you haven't hurt yet. 
So I'm turning the other cheek. It really is interesting how Paul's attitude in adversity is incredible. Bring it on. I'm not moved. I'm not scared. I'm not ashamed. Uh, you missed a spot. Why don't you hit me there too? I'm not as far ahead as other martyrs have been. So fill up that which is behind. And I'm confident that it will turn for the benefit of Christ's body, meaning Christ's church. Who am I to shield my body from sufferings when Christ suffered all things to build his body, namely the members of his church? Interesting how Paul is wrestling with all of this. He goes on, whereof I am made a minister, a minister of suffering, a minister of the gospel, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Remember how often Paul referred to the mystery in Ephesians? This mystery of Christ transforming people? This mystery of Jews and Gentiles being brought into family relationships, fellow citizens with the saints? Oh, what a mystery. It's a mystery that God kept in heaven and then dispensed on earth through a dispensation of the gospel that Paul is more than eager to spread across the world as he knows it. He says in verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. We saw Paul refer to these riches often in his letter to the Ephesians. Here, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory whom we preach, I mean, that, that's mystery, all right. How can Christ be in you? How could I have hope of glory when I'm so far from where I need to be? I'll be patient. Embrace the gospel. Allow this mystery to unfold as God works within you in mysterious ways. And this Christ in you, Paul says, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And again, that perfection is maturity. This is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, like we saw in Ephesians. That's what prophets and apostles are working toward. And Paul's doing just that. That's what he says. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Can you see the symbiotic relationship, the companionship between Paul and Jesus? Working together, Christ working in him, through him, to be able to change these saints. In chapter 2, he continues right where he's left off. Verse 1, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you. And for them at Laodicea, a neighboring city there in the same valley in the middle of Asia Minor. So I've been working for you, I've been working for them, I've been, been this great conflict Ah, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, and that's what's really been weighing on his mind, remember, he hasn't been there. I don't know you, Colossian saints, and I wish I did. But if I could be there, if I could meet you, if I could understand more of what you're going through, I, I'm conflicted because there's so much I want to teach you. I wonder if similar conflicts take place within prophets and apostles today as they prepare for general conference. What am I feeling conflicted about? What am I worrying about in my worldwide, tra worldwide travels and seeing what the saints are going through and how they're living or not living the gospel? What would I share with them 
To me, that's a great way to approach General Conference. What's on the prophets and apostles' minds? What is the great conflict they have for me? And here's one that's on Paul's mind. It's probably on President Nelson's also. That their hearts might be comforted, be knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that's a mouthful, but that's what's been weighing heavy on Paul's mind. That's the, the conflict that he has for them. Are you knit together in love? Or are there factions opening up within the church? We saw that in his letter to the Romans. And are there Jewish factions versus Gentile factions? We saw that in Corinth. Are there Pauline factions versus Apollos factions? And are we one with each other and with God? We're going to see some of this fraying of the social fabric in Colossae as offshoots are splitting and, and people aren't holding on to the pure gospel that was first preached to them. That's why I asked them earlier, are you grounded? Are you settled? Will you continue? Or are you getting pulled away? Yeah, there's a conflict here. Yeah, I'm worried. Do you have the full assurance of understanding? Do you know what we've preached to you? Do you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because maybe if you're leaving it, it's because you don't have that full assurance of understanding. You don't get it and you don't think you ever will. I think that's part of the challenge there. Often when I've met people that, have left, that are leaving the church, I've sometimes asked, describe for me the church that you're leaving behind. And they'll roll their eyes like, you are part of that church. You, you work for the church. You know what it is. I'm like, well, I, I know the church through my eyes. I just don't know it through yours. And I'd love to see what you've seen. So please describe the church that you're leaving behind. And so often as they describe it, it's like, oh, no wonder. Yeah, I'd probably want to leave that too. But that isn't the church as I understand it. It's not the church as prophets and apostles are encouraging us to become Oh, you're probably struggling against the cultural side of things. And I get it. I struggle against much of that as well. But that can change. And we need your help to change it. So don't leave. Continue. Stay grounded. Stay settled. And receive a full assurance of understanding. Let me help you understand what the church is trying to accomplish. And why it's that way sometimes. And and some of the positives that can lead to those negatives. And let's prove some contraries and find a Goldilocks zone and move forward through all of this. Okay? That full assurance of understanding, that acknowledgement of the mystery of God. You understand what he's trying to do? It's a mysterious thing. It, it's hard. And we're working toward it. So how can we unpack some of the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge so that you stay with us? Because otherwise, our hearts will not be knit together in love. Otherwise, we will be torn apart. We will be, well, I'll put it this way, the body of Christ will be dismembered. And that's a stark <laughs> visual image. Remember, we're members of the body of Christ. Paul's already talked about it in this very letter. And what does it mean to dismember something? I mean, if we lose a member of the church, oh, they, they fell away, okay. And sometimes we get sadly so used to it that unless it's somebody close to us, 
it doesn't hurt so much. So somebody went and acted. Well, I didn't know them anyway. No, that's a member of the body of Christ. And without them, without them being tied to me with those ligaments of love, like we saw in a previous letter, then it weakens the body. The whole body. We need every body part. And if we've lost that member, then the body of Christ has been dismembered. And that verb, whoo, that's, that's amputation. That's cutting off body parts. We cannot afford to be dismembered as the body of Jesus. We need every member. And so what can we do to share the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? What can we do to give people the full assurance of understanding? What can we do to explain some of the mysteries they don't yet understand? And through the whole process, what can we do to knit our hearts together in love? Knit is a great word, by the way. My grandma was an expert. She's taught my daughter, and she's amazing at it too. There's no seams there. It's one, it's one piece of fabric. And to knit hearts, where you can't tell where mine ends and yours begins. We're so one. That's Zion for you. And that's what Paul is praying for among the Colossian saints. In verse 4 through 7, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Because that's how dismembering begins. The flattering words that you see in the Book of Mormon from the Antichrists, they're always trying to lead people away from unity in Jesus. So beware of those beguiling words. Beware of the enticement. For though I be absent in the flesh, Paul says, yet am I with you in the Spirit. I'm here in prison, but that's only bodily. Spiritually, I'm right there in Colossae, wanting to build you up as best I can. I'm joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Can you picture what Paul is envisioning here? I've heard amazing things from Epaphras. Uh, your, your reputation precedes you, and it's as if I'm with you in spirit, thrilled to see the order of the church there, grateful for your steadfastness in the faith. And then he says, to build on that, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Follow him. Walk in his footsteps. You've started. Don't end. And then he says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught. Abounding therein with thanksgiving. Earlier it was grounded and settled. Here it is rooted and established. Elder Maxwell once gave a talk where he tied together all kinds of verbs like that to describe just how grounded in the gospel we have to become. I love those words. Rooted suggests that not only am I holding tightly to gospel ground, but I'm also sinking tap roots down to reach the living water. With that, I'll be able to handle any amount of sun that is beating down on me. I'll be able to offer to others the fruit of the tree of life. Not only am I rooted, I'm built up I'm established, I'm settled, I'm firm. The language of Colossians is so relevant to our day when we're enduring the earthquakes in diverse places, when people's faith is being shaken. And so as one who is intent on helping people build unshakable faith, I love this kind of language. Will we continue? Grounded, settled, established, 
rooted, built up, secure. Will I be faithful? Will I abide in him? Will I remain? Time will tell, but what Paul is telling us here is how to get there. He mentioned thanksgiving in the last verse. It's amazing what gratitude can do when we acknowledge what the gospel has done for us. If we continually live in that, then we'll never take the gospel for granted. We won't have to lose it to realize all that we've lost. That's one element. What are we up against? Look at verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you. And the Greek there means to plunder or to lead away captive. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to drag us away from the tree of life, from the straight and narrow way. No wonder we need an iron rod to grab a hold of. Otherwise, people will spoil us. And notice the specifics here. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, I know some philosophy majors, and I've studied a lot of philosophy myself. It's not a blanket condemnation of all philosophizing, okay? It's the vain type. It's the deceitful type that Paul is warning them about. The way he puts it here, it's philosophy after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And the rudiments, the Greek word there could mean principles or propositions. What's the world proposing? What are worldly principles that are vain, that are based merely in human tradition, that are not built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ? Those are the ones you need to be aware of and beware of. For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You remember from the hymn, He's the image of the invisible God. We don't see the Father among us, and we don't see the Spirit because he's a personage of spirit. But in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as far as we are concerned here on this earth. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. There's Paul echoing the hymn that he quoted earlier, and wants us to... Not only tap into that power, but to plug in permanently and never become unattached. He says in verse 11, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And again, that's an internal rather than an external operation. This, by the way, seems to hint at what one of these factions might be. He doesn't clearly specify at all or kind of label every subgroup. But if there are some people being pulled away from grounded, rooted, established, settled in the faith, well, some are being pulled in the direction of the circumcision. It's the Judaizers that always seem to be busy picking off and peeling away people from Christianity. So Paul is warning them against them. Instead of circumcision, let's go with baptism. It's still the same Abrahamic covenant. It's just a new token of it. That's what he says in the next verse. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. This is Romans 6 all over again. We've been buried. Well, we were crucified with Christ. The old man is gone. We bury that old man in the waters of baptism so we can rise with Jesus in newness of life. Circumcision was an amazing token of the covenant. Uh, to cut away a part of you, to shed some blood, indicative of the shedding of Christ's blood, 
to have a token that reminds you of the importance of posterity and raising that posterity in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Circumcision was an amazing token, but it's just a token. It's the covenant that matters, and the covenant is new. It's everlasting. So as this dispensation has been spread on our, at our time, and we receive the new covenant that's always been everlasting, how do we personify it? How do we tap into it? What token will remind us of it? It's not the shedding of blood anymore because Christ has already shed his. It's not external, outward performances and ordinances. That was Aaronic. We're now Melchizedek. And so it's internal we must go. So let's circumcise the heart. Let's perform an internal operation. Let's put off the natural man and become a saint through the atonement of Christ. Burial, resurrection, ooh, baptism describes that or embodies that beautifully. Okay, same, to excuse me, same covenant, new token. You with me so far? What we're seeing unfold in these last few verses is what Paul is trying to guard the Colossian saints against. So let's be one, hearts knit together. Don't follow the factions that would go toward philosophy and vain deceit. Don't follow the factions that would pull you back toward Judaism. That's already been fulfilled in Jesus. What else? Verse 13 and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, so he's still talking to that group, you hath he quickened together with him. And remember, quickened means to be made alive. So dead and buried, now quickened and alive. Quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And that open show, that outward triumph, is what the Roman legions would do with the conquered people. Come parade the captives as they bring them home. Like, look who we beat. Well, Christ has conquered all things. And he's hoping to conquer the natural man in us. Help us overcome it. That's why he's working on inward things. Instead of giving us the, an outward list of boxes to check. You remember when we talked about the Galatians and the buyer's remorse they had with the gospel of Jesus Christ? They were kind of slipping back into Judaism because at least I knew where I stood. And I could check a box and say that that was enough. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Well, there's some people in Colossae that are working some magic as well, casting spells of vain deceit and human philosophy, convincing people they're not good enough and through Jesus Christ they never will be. So you, gotta, you, got, you need more boxes to check. And here's a big one, circumcision. Now, when he says there about the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, we have to be careful with that because ordinances are important. He's emphasizing baptism here after all. So to those that would push back and go, nope, Paul condemned all ordinances. No, he didn't. He mentions ordinances right after emphasizing baptism. It's just a different ordinance. The ordinance of baptism is for us. The ordinance of circumcision seemed to be against us. And that's what he's referring to here. Ordinances that 
were against us. Actually, it's not even the ordinances, because then it would have to have a plural verb. Ordinances that were. No, it says ordinances that was. Is Paul messing up his grammar? No. Read the whole sentence. It's the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, let's think about it. Uh, I'm not saying anything against ordinances. I'm just asking what particular ordinances said about those who, who participated in them. In the ordinance of circumcision, you are agreeing. You're signing on the dotted line and you are agreeing to the, to the covenant with Abraham. Well, that was then, what, to the covenant of Abraham was added the law of Moses, okay? And what does the law of Moses say? Well, the law of Moses, it's strict, it's demanding, it's your schoolmaster to bring you unto Christ. But as Paul taught the Romans, that schoolmaster is a strict one to the point that it's there to shut your mouth and say, you're never going to pass this class on your own. Yikes. It's okay. You're not meant to. You're meant to pass it with Christ. So the law introduces you to your need for the Savior. It, the law proves your fallenness and hopefully humbles you to the point that you'll reach out for Christ as he's reaching out for you. Okay? So the problem, though, if you're going to go back to the law of Moses, you Galatians, or get pulled into the law of Moses, you Colossians, my worry is you're embracing a law you're not going to be able to keep. And that's an issue Paul brought up repeatedly. Right? Peter said the same thing. Why would we force them to live a law that we couldn't handle and neither could our ancestors? Okay? All the law ever did was tell us how broken we were. And then it's like the light bulb comes on. Duh. We needed to admit that. Then we would need the Savior and admit that too. Hmm. Genius, Moses. Thanks for setting us up for failure in order to set us up for true Christian success. Hmm. Interesting. Well, back to the language here. What is the writing on the wall going to be? What would those earlier ordinances write about you if they're writing up their report? Well, the law of Moses would say, fail. This person did not keep them all perfectly. And remember, the law itself can't redeem them. It's pointing them forward to redemption in Christ. Well, if you can't embrace that redemption in Christ, then you're stuck with a law that can't save you. Uh, so what are you left with? You're left with handwriting that spells out a guilty verdict, and there's no hope. So what does Christ do? The blood of Christ. You see, it's, this is permanent ink that the law has written. It's a sharpie. You're like, great. What's strong enough? I can't erase it. There's, I really did commit sins. I really did break the law. So what, what's hope, what hope is there for me? And Jesus steps in and says, well, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And it's not a matter of erasing your past as it is a matter of blotting out the guilty verdict. Instead, I can, I can blot out, ver uh, I, 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 can't I can't blot out guilt because it, it did happen. But guilt in terms of permanent consequence and you're now going to have to pay for that guilt with the death penalty, spiritual death? Oh, no, no. I can blot that out and allow your guilt to be a learning experience instead of a, a condemning experience. Okay? 
We can go education instead of condemnation. Are you, are you with me on that? So I'm going to actually take some ink that's stronger than the ink that wrote down guilty. I'm going to take my own blood and blot out that earlier handwriting. Cover it in my blood so they can't even read what was written underneath. All they'll see instead is what I did for you in Gethsemane and Calvary. This idea of blotting out the handwriting of that old ordinance that just said you're a goner and there's no hope, let's replace it with some more beautiful handwriting. Because if, again, we're not saying anything against ordinances, just that particular one. If we replace it with a new ordinance like baptism, what handwriting does baptism put on the wall? I've thought about this when I think of eight-year-olds getting baptized, because they're getting baptized for the remission of sins, and yet an eight-year-old hasn't committed any, at least none that count. So what sins are being remitted when an eight-year-old gets baptized? And boom, that's when the light bulb comes on. Oh, it's the, it's the sins yet to be committed. Now, I'm not saying God is, is giving them a general amnesty. It's like, oh, my baptism, my get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, no, but in a way... My baptism is my covenant with Christ. I'm being connected to him. And my promise is that I'll do everything within my power to remember him and follow him and keep his commandments. And God promises he'll always forgive me as a result. He's fully invested in this relationship. We have an ordinance to prove it. A covenant relationship. But because of this new covenant of baptism... The handwriting is not this old, oh, gothic script that just spells out guilty in capital letters. No, it is a softer, kinder cursive where Christ himself is saying innocent, as in my innocence, and I will come and wash away every sin that is committed from this day forward. If they'll simply repent and come unto me, I will come running with sufficient blood to blot out old handwriting. Okay? The handwriting of baptism is beautiful. The handwriting of, circ of circumcision, it didn't leave any wiggle room or a chance to learn from our mistakes. When it says there that he takes that old guilty language and nails it to his cross to triumph over it, it's amazing. When it says that Jesus took captivity captive, when he sent death to the grave, where he crucified crucifixion in some ways, because crucifixion was what you do to the most horrible of malefactors, the worst kinds of criminals in Rome. And instead of crucifying the guilty, Jesus ends up crucifying guilt. That's amazing. He takes that old handwriting that condemns us all and he nails it to the cross and crucifies it. I think of Martin Luther taking all the things that he found wrong uh, in the faith that he was raised in and writing them down into 95 points, bullet points, theses, and then going to the church, the cathedral in Wittenberg, and nailing them to the door. I, I couldn't help myself. I saw online these t-shirts that combined history, religion, and usually a bad dad joke. And I'm like, that's the trifecta. That's like my three favorite things. 
And so I bought one that I, I just, I, I couldn't stop. I couldn't help myself. It showed a monk kind of hung, hunched over a, a medieval manuscript, probably copying scripture. And at the top of it, above it, it says, I always wanted to be a monk. And I felt that way when I came home from my mission. That's why I went to, ta- to teach at the MTC. It was my Mormon monastery. <laughs> Avoid social life. Just train the next generation of missionaries. My wife was the one who convinced me to come out of that monastic life. But on this t-shirt, showing this monk my alter ego, it said, I always wanted to be a monk. And then underneath it says, but I never got the chance. And it spells chance, C-H-A-N-T-S. And I'm a sucker for a good Gregorian chant too. But just the thought of this poor monk that never got the chance, didn't qualify. I, I couldn't help myself, had to buy that one. The other one I had to buy was a big, a t-shirt with just a big picture of Martin Luther on the front. And it has underneath, in smaller letters, it has his name and Wittenberg Church in 1517. Just to make it, for those who don't know what Martin looked like, it, it spells it out. But in the biggest print right underneath his picture, it just says, nailed it. And when I saw it, I just laughed out loud and, and bought the thing. Because Martin, you made some mistakes later on, and you overcorrected in your zeal to correct. But when it came to recognizing some things that were wrong and needed changing, you did nail it. But what I love about this verse in Colossians is if anybody nailed it, it was Jesus. If anybody took what was wrong with our misunderstanding of things. Remember, we're not getting the mystery and we need an assurance of understanding. And that's what's making us fall prey to vain philosophy and people pulling us in other directions. It's, it's what I don't understand about the truth that's right in front of me. And Jesus just nails it. He takes all of those complaints, all the things we're doing wrong, the things we don't understand, and just he nails it to the cross. I can fix all of that. I can help you through it. I can redeem you from your sins, from your, from your iniquity, as well as from your ignorance. Just come unto me in a new way, with a newness of hope, with baptism, new ordinances, a new and everlasting covenant, a new dispensation of grace. These verses here in in Colossians chapter 2 are so profound. So think about the nail. Think about blotting out the handwriting. And you'll be thinking about Jesus and what he did for all of us. Now, comparing that, let's, go, let's talk a little bit more about that old ordinance and all the legalistic rules that it entailed. Verse 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, because kosher laws, they were judging you about everything you ever put in your mouth, or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. And yeah, ritual calendar, ceremonial law of Moses. There was so many things you could fall short of. There was an endless number of boxes to check, and nobody could check them all. Now, he goes on, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. I love this idea of it was a shadow of things to come. I'm not getting rid of ordinances entirely. We just need to make some changes within them. I'm not getting rid of of meat and drink kinds of limitations, because you do need to be careful. Not quite as careful as kosher laws, but word of wisdom is important. How about 
holy days and Sabbaths, yes, keep the Sabbath. But the way it was portrayed in the Old Covenant, ah, there, that was just a shadow of better things to come. It's not a day of don'ts, the way it's become. It's a day of do's. And the do is to come unto Christ and rejoice in Him. The body is of Jesus, after all. And it's that body He's trying to build, a church here upon the earth. You understand? that There's something beautiful about these earlier signs pointing forward. But once you get to the destination, the signposts, the signposts have served their purpose. We're here. We have Christ. There's no need to go back to those, to the old handwriting. Okay. In verse 18, he says, "Let no man beguile you." And the Greek there is defraud you or disqualify you. Don't let them beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which ye have not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And with that, Paul has just dropped a bunch of hints about some of these false philosophies people are falling prey to. They're being beguiled and being defrauded by talk of voluntary humility. Now, what's that refer to? Well, some have suggested that's asceticism. That's, oh, lowering yourself to some level of absolute abject poverty uh, where you, I mean, self-flagellation and self-mortification and, and you're trying to cause yourself as much humiliation as you can. It's self-inflicted. That's that voluntary humility. But it's this humiliation and it's, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to do that. That, that's not what the Lord is asking. And then worshiping of angels, that seemed to be another problem that was creeping into the church there in Colossae as well. That, no, 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 it's, it's not a worship of angels. We're worshiping God, the Father, Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead. They, they are the ones that deserve our worship, not angels. It's almost like the Corinthians were believing too little. Ah, there can't be a resurrection. And the Colossian saints are believing too much. Angels, we, we need to worship them as well. You know, it's, we're not living hardcore enough. There's an overzealousness on the part of some with this voluntary humility, this worshiping of angels. But what is it? That's just an intrusion into things. Interesting word, intruding into those things which you haven't seen. You end up being vainly puffed up. That's a fleshly mind. And you think you're better than other people because you're living some... Some, have, some scholars have wondered, is this like early Gnosticism, where we're in the know? We really know the mysteries of God. Is this early asceticism? And like, no, I need to be out there and just hardcore. There's a simplicity of the gospel, and there's a, a Goldilocks zone where you believe neither too little nor too much, where you're not too easy on yourself, but you're not too hard on yourself either. There, there is a middle way. And that's what we're supposed to walk in. Paul goes on and says more of these problems. And not holding the head. And remember, in his analogy of the church as Christ's body, well, guess what the head is? Well, that's Jesus himself. So you got to hold on to the head. And these people are not doing that. Not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. You remember those ligaments of love? You remember every body part being strengthened by the parts all around them? The problem that Paul is 
recognizing as he's heard stories from Epaphras is that ah, there's all the saints there are good they're they're amazing but there's so many tugs and pulls with philosophy and and Judaizers and and people wanting to do this or that and oh, Paul I'm afraid that the fabric of the faith is fraying a little bit and we've just got to knit it all back together so there's no seams between the saints can you help with that? And Paul's like, oh yeah, I got, I got something up my sleeve. <laughs> get, out of, get out something to write with and let me dictate this letter. But if we can help the saints understand what they're up against, guard themselves against those outward influence, outside influences so they can continue in the faith, grounded, rooted, established, settled, and never moved. Paul says in verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, so if you've overcome those false philosophies and, and worldly principles, if those have been nailed to the cross, if those have been washed away in the baptismal water, then why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? And remember, these aren't all ordinances in general. The JST actually clarifies it. Why are ye subject to ordinances which are after the doctrines and commandments of men? And then, back to the King James, he clarifies them. Ordinances that say things like, touch not, taste not, handle not. And all those don't, 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 don't. That's what the law of Moses was. At least that's what people turned it into. And that Jesus had come to fulfill, not destroy. So forget all those that are, oh, nitpicking every tiny thing. And don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Which all are to perish with the using, Paul says. I mean, those things that those rules dealt with, they weren't eternal anyway. It was just a law of ordinances and performances to keep them in constant remembrance because they were prone to forget. If we will simply remember, then we don't need the constant reminders, okay? So yeah, overcome those ordinances that are after the commandments and doctrines of men which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the sanctifying of the flesh. And the JST there, neglecting the body as to the satisfying the flesh, not in any honor to God. Now, again, tricky language there, but what Paul seems to be getting at there is some of these practices appear to be good. And yeah, they have... Oh, an image of that. They, in, they have a show of wisdom. But if it's just will worship, and like, look at me, at how self-disciplined I am, and all eyes on me because of this radical asceticism, and I'm saying no to everything, and I'm higher and holier than everyone else. I have all these self-appointed self standards, and I'm keeping them all. And since you're not, you must have, you must be living at a lower level. Oh, be careful with that. That's... That's will worship. That's false humility. That's neglecting the body in harmful ways instead of finding the right level of self-discipline that God is asking. I'm not chucking discipline, but I'm not denying zeal. It's overzealousness I'm trying to guard against. Okay, And we see some of those factions entering into the church too. Not trying to create a separate church, but almost a church within the church of people that are higher and holier than others, even higher and holier than prophets and apostles who are just holding us back. 
Be careful about that. This is playing to strong members where there's plenty of other groups that are playing to weaker members. We got to be careful on both sides. And then Paul continues to make this point in chapter 3. There's a real difference here between the old and the new. Not just the old ordinances and the new. Not just Old Testament and new or old dispensation and new. But old man or woman versus the new saint that Christ is trying to transform us into. Notice how he says it in chapter 3. Verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, and your baptism would suggest that you have, then seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. I mean, while you're up there, while you've risen with him, you might as well look around a bit. See what the Lord has laid up in store for you, okay? Make that your focus, so that when you come back down to earth, you're able to center your soul on the things that matter most. The way he puts it next, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. I love the way he puts that. Don't get caught up with worldly things. You've seen, you caught a glimpse of heavenly things when you were risen with him in baptism. Have there been times where that's happened to you? Have there been times where it really did feel like your spirit almost rose out of your body and you got a glimpse of what heaven really entails? Well, if you caught a glimpse, hold on to it. And set your heart on those things. Because the kinds of, oh, baubles and toys that the adversary is offering us. That's all the world has to give. If we can't compare them to the heavenly things that we've been shown spiritually, then it's easy to fall prey. Like, wow, it does look pretty amazing. But all that glitters is not gold. Everything that shines, that's not reflecting celestial glory. And if we've seen the real thing, it's really hard to settle for a counterfeit. We know too much. We know better. And so set your affection on things above. And then the way he says it at the end. Because you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And I was thinking about that in terms of, maybe I've watched too many like cop shows in my life. But to see someone who is so in danger, like they're going to they're gonna rat out the mob or something. And so they have to go and witness relocation. But there's such a danger in their lives because they're so opposed to the evil they once partook of that, well, we're going to have to fake your death so that your old friends, new enemies, think you're gone. They're going to stop looking for you. We're going to fake your death and then we're going to hide you. We're going to put you in witness relocation and witness protection program give you an, an absolutely new, new identity, maybe even some, you know, we'll change the way you look. We'll do some, well, whatever it takes. Change your name, change your ID. Your old person has ceased to exist. And people fell for it. We had a beautiful funeral for you. Wish you could have been there. <laughs> but now you're hidden with a new identity. I get the same sense here in these verses at the beginning of Colossians 3 that why would you get pulled back into wicked ways when that old wicked self is dead? And we didn't fake the death. We buried the natural man or woman in the waters of baptism. Pulled the plug and you went down the drain. It's gone. And now that that old identity is dead and buried, 
ooh, we're going to have to give you a new life, but let it be one that is hid with Christ in God. Okay? A, a new name, His name. A new image in your countenance. Created after His image and in His likeness. And, and now you can begin a new life in Christ. You're hidden in Him. Witness relocation. None of those old connections will even recognize you anymore. That's being safe. He then says in verse 4, because the question is, well, when do I come out of hiding? When do I no longer have to be in witness relocation? Well, here's the answer. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. <laughs> I love that. He's coming. You can come with him. I mean, you've been hidden with him in God. So when he returns, you return alongside him. Now to get there, what do we have to do? Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And mortify means to kill. So you got to kill the natural man. Elder Maxwell used to say, starve him to death. And he's easy to put off. Okay, quit feeding him. Yeah, mortify him. And then here's a list of things that the natural man used to be involved in. And the spiritual man or woman would never touch. Fornication uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, which means strong and lustful desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But don't worry, that life is over. Remember, it's dead. It's been buried. It's been crucified. It was nailed to the cross, and it's been buried in the waters of baptism. So Christ could raise you in newness of life. Beautiful imagery here, but it does take some effort on our part to mortify those lustful leanings, those worldly desires. We have to put off the natural man. In verse 8 he says, But now ye also put off all of these. And he adds a few more things to his list. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Get rid of all of those things. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's beautiful. To be renewed in knowledge? What do I now know that I didn't before? Well, now I know who I am. I know my truest identity. I am a child of God. I have heavenly parents and I'm created after their image and likeness. I'm meant to grow up to be like them. Wow, what, why would I give fall prey to the weak and beggarly elements, as Paul said in an earlier letter? Why would I succumb to the natural man? Why would I put on those old clothes that don't even fit me anymore? Filthy rags, now that I think of it. I've already put on the new person in Christ. And it's time to move forward in that newness. Paul says in verse 11, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. No, we've eliminated all those old labels. But Christ is all and in all. Can you think of every lesser identity being eclipsed by our identity in Christ? He's all. He's in all. He's in me, in fact. And because I'm a child of God and a child of the covenant and a disciple of Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter if I started out 
Greek or Jew or barbarian or Scythian, whether it's circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. All those other identities just fade away. The way Paul puts it, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. This is a powerful list of Christ-like attributes. He's already given us several lists of natural man's sins. But to start working on this list, to develop bowels of mercies, that's a great, a great phrase. Because again, the bowels are the guts. You're feeling it down deep within you. That's where compassion arises. That's where empathy is felt. It's a longing. It's a, it's a gut punch to feel real compassion, to suffer with someone. Empathy, to feel the, 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 the suffering or passion within. I'm going through it right alongside you. I'm in you as you endure. And that's what the Lord is asking us to develop. Alongside kindness, mental humility. That's humbleness of mind. We saw that in Philippians. I'm thinking of you better than I thought of myself. That helps move toward unity. Or as he puts it, to forbear and forgive one another. To forbear means just, I'm going to put up with you. But more than put up with you, I'm going to forgive you for making that so hard. We're all in this together. We're just trying to have our hearts knit together in one. In fact, one of my favorite phrases there is when he says to put on all these things. I mean, if you're the elect of God, if you're holy and beloved, then these are all things you need to put on. After having put off the natural man, put on the man or woman of Christ, this is what it looks like. But the beauty of that phrase, put on, is in Greek, it means to clothe. It means to endow. We saw this at the end of Ephesians last week. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. You're being endowed with this kind of protective equipment. But if that's kind of the, oh, the, the, the plate, the, the chain mail, the hardened steel of that armor, that's the outward facing armor of God. And I'm endowed with that. But what about the inward facing? Is there anything that, to cushion the armor up against my body? When I played football, the outside of the helmet is hard, but the inside is soft. The outside of the shoulder pads is hard. The inside is cushioned. And there's something about having the strength to face the opposition with that armor. But also to have that armor cushioned by Christ-like attributes on the inside. And in both cases, the word Paul uses is endow, clothe, put on. I am endowed, I am meant to be endowed with not only the protection that the armor of God provides, but also the Christ-like attributes that makes it such a comfortable fit. If I can be endowed with those things, and Christ helps me forbear and forgive, he helps me work toward humility of mind, he's the one that's carving out space down in the bowels where I can be filled with mercy and compassion and love like he was. In verse 14, Paul continues, 
and above all these things. Remember the armor of God, above all, put on the shield of faith. In this, now that we're working internally, above all things, what's the greatest Christ-like attribute I could possibly develop? Above all these things, put on charity. Ah, yes. Pure love of Christ that never faileth. Everything else might fail, but it won't. Remember Paul's incredible discourse on charity in 1 Corinthians 13? Here he's bringing us back to that all-important attribute. Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And if it's a bond, then it ties us together. It's the ligament of love. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. There's a nod to gratitude once again. But think about that. If we allow peace to rule, then no lesser feelings can usurp the throne. Contention, backbiting, deceit, Anything that separates us from one another is banished from the kingdom. Because who's on the throne? Peace is. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And if that's the case, and that's what President Nelson was, was emphasizing last, last April. We have to eliminate disputation, contention, friction between one another. And if love prevails, if charity does, and if, and if peace rules then that's exactly what we'll get. We'll end up being knit together, which is what Paul's been asking for from the start of this letter. He then says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Not just kind of pass in and then pass out. No, this is not the word going through the drive-thru. He's coming in and you, you want him to set up permanent camp with you. We've got a room with your name on it. Dwell with us. In fact, dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That's so far beyond skimming the scriptures. No, you're letting the word dwell. It's rich. It's wisdom. Go on. It's teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, like the kind we just sang back in chapter 1. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Oh, music is such a beautiful way to teach and admonish. And to admonish means to caution, to warn, to call to repentance. Has a hymn ever done that for you? That's what Paul's hoping for here. Let's sing together. Then we really are in unison, or at least in harmony. How's that for hearts knit together in love? What else? Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And that too brings us into unity and love. If we're all doing things in Christ's name, then we all have the same purpose, the same aim. We're receiving our marching orders from the same commander-in-chief. We're playing our instruments in our songs and psalms and spiritual hymns because a singular conductor is in front of us all, and we're doing everything in his name. This is what the angel had told Adam and Eve when they first left the garden. From here on out, everything you do do it in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how you're going to navigate a fallen world. In verse 18, Paul then gives similar practical advice to the Colossians as he did to the Ephesians. This will ring a bell. There's a lot of overlap or repetition between Ephesians and Colossians. So in verse 18, he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. 
and husbands, return the favor. Love your wives and be not bitter against them. Remember we saw similar language in Ephesians chapter 5? There it was the husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There was a deeper theological meaning in the Ephesian version. But to the Colossians, it's still a sense of very practical relational wisdom. Good moral advice. Wives, submit. Husbands, love. And remember what we talked about last time. That's a step in the terrestrial direction. We still have steps in the celestial direction yet to make. He goes on, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And we talked about that at length in our discussion of Ephesians. So whether it's the equal partner horizontal relationships like husband and wife, whether it's the vertical unequal relationships like parent and child, or the next one, even more unequal in the relationship, how about servants and masters? Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. So it's really in our relationships where the, the gospel's rubber hits the road of lived experience. In those, within the home, and again, if you're living in the Roman Empire, this is how the home is set up with a father, a patriarchal authority, and then a, a wife and children and servants. Can we make this a Christ-like coexistence so that hearts are knit even there? We've got to start at home if we're ever going to figure it out at church. Okay. Then verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto man, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respecter of persons. And since there is no respecter of persons, whether you are on the husband's side or the wife's side, whether you belong to the parent class or the child class, whether you are servant or master, doesn't matter. It's how you treat other people. It's what you do within those relationships, because you will reap what you sow. This is the law of the harvest. And I hope you are harvesting good grain by planting it heartily as to the Lord. Paul then has one last chapter, one short little message to leave the Colossian saints. And he begins it by, oh, in some ways chapter 4 should have waited. <laughs> Whoever gave the chapter breaks should have waited another verse or two. Because having just talked about relationships, and we saw husband-wife, we saw parent-child, we saw servant, but uh, does the master not have to do anything? Oh, okay. Yeah, I, sorry, forgot about that. Next chapter, let me start there. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, yet this, I, didn't, I didn't forget you entirely. Give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. And again, that's similar to what Paul taught the Ephesians. But going beyond that, some more practical advice. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. There's the gratitude element again. But watching in prayer, that's interesting. I mean, I thought we were supposed to keep our eyes closed. Well, maybe, maybe not. Is there a way to pray with your eyes wide open spiritually? This is the apostles. Watch with me one hour there in Gethsemane. For us, well, what are we watching? What are we praying for? Paul says, with all praying also for us, 
that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul is praying that they will pray for him. Pray that I can get out of prison so I can keep preaching the gospel. Pray that a door will open. Not just a prison door, but a door of utterance. That's pretty powerful. When I was a kid, we were asked constantly to pray that the nations of the earth will open their borders so missionaries can come in. And we are in countries now that I never would have dreamed of entering when I was young. There are still a few doors of utterance that remain closed to us. So we can continue praying for that. And it doesn't even have to be on the national scale. Maybe it's your neighbors. And there's no door of utterance that they'll ever let me walk through. Well, pray for opportunities. And you'd be amazed at times where something comes up more naturally. And you can naturally bring up how the gospel has affected your life. Doors of utterance. Yeah, we need to be praying for those to open all around us. Paul then says in verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Interesting. Those outside the church, those non-members. You better walk in wisdom toward them. Wise up in your behavior toward non-members because they're judging you. They're critiquing the gospel based on how you live. So, wise up. Redeeming the time, which means to take advantage of every opportunity. You've got time right now. Use it wisely. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Personally, I worry that some people take that passage far too literally. And when they talk to other people, especially those that are without, outside the church or outside their political party or outside their circle of friends or outside their own ideology, they take that literally and they, it's salty the way they speak to them. And you are grinding that salt into open wounds and causing greater pain than ever. That's not what Paul's referring to. Seasoned with salt. Salt was part of what was given with the sacrifices of the Old Testament law. It savors things. Is there a way to season things so that they're, more, so that they're less distasteful to people? When you serve up something like, ooh, this thing could really use some salt. Well, how am I speaking to them? Would they feel the same? Am I being salty in the wrong way <laughs> while well, lacking salt in the right way? Oh, to season our speech with grace, to pray that we might know how we ought to answer. When I was in Tennessee during the Romney campaign, uh, or a time, my time at Divinity School, and people constantly asking me questions about the church, I would go out to other congregations and just do Q&A, and I always would reassure them, you can ask anything you want. It's all on the table. You can't hurt my feelings. But I would always pray that I would be able to know what I ought to answer. I had great faith in the Lord's promise that if you'll open your mouth, it will be filled. And he always came through for me. But to see here, that kind of prayer helped me know how to season my language in such a way that it, it is tasteful to people. And they can, they can taste a little, the hints, hmm, what, what did you put in this? I'm, I'm detecting little notes of the fruit of the tree of life. I, oh, you're dis discerning. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that you could 
you, you could figure out the recipe. Oh, a little salt in there. Oh, just enough. It's beautiful. Brings out the flavor without getting too salty. Oh, I've, I've had, worked a long time to perfect that recipe. I used to always dump the salt in, and it was always overkill. You get what I'm, what I'm saying here? We've got to be better, especially those with those that are without, on, across the aisle, in, over some kind of middle wall of partition. From there, Paul says in verse 7, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. We are getting a sense that Paul's wrapping up the letter here because he's starting to bring in other people. Often he'll do that at the close of his epistles. And so here, Tychicus, he'll let you know how I'm doing. I'm not going to talk about myself and all the things I've been through here in prison, but Tychicus can get you up to speed. He's a beloved brother after all. I trust him. He's a faithful minister, fellow servant, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. So I want to know how you're doing. He's going to tell me. I know you're going to want to know how I'm doing. He'll tell you. He's come and comforted me. I know he'll comfort you as well. And not just him. Here's another one. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. And hold on to that name Onesimus. We're going to meet him in a couple of weeks when we study the, the one-chapter letter to Philemon. Onesimus was actually a, a slave, and yet a... Oh, a fellow prisoner of Christ, as Paul might say. And he was willing to serve the Lord as a faithful and beloved brother. And he's one of you. You Colossian saints, you know him. Verse 10, here's another one. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he saluteth you. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye received commandments. Oh, if he come unto you, receive him. Some have suggested this might be Mark, as in the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Maybe, maybe not, we're not sure. But either way, this is a good soul that Paul is commending to the Colossians to receive. And Jesus, oh, careful, keep reading, which is called Justice. Oh, okay, so it's not Jesus of Nazareth. No, don't get your hopes up quite yet. But Jesus, meaning Joshua, was a fairly common name among Jews. And so here's one. He's also called Justice. Is that a last name, perhaps? who are of the circumcision. So yes, these are Jewish converts. They're serving missions as well. So receive them. These are not Judaizers, don't worry. They've completely weaned themselves off the old law. That handwriting's been blotted out. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. This sounds like an amazing missionary district. When I taught at the MTC, I had incredible ones. And sister after sister and elder after elder were just ready to rock. Ready to, I mean, here was the huddle, and then two months later, ready break, and they're off covering the earth, ready to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so take... Aristarchus, and take Tychicus, and take Marcus, and, and Jesus, and Epaphras, and anyone else that's willing to work and receive them. The goal here is that collectively we can help you stay strong, that you can stand perfect and complete. Remember, this is Colossians. This is rooted and grounded and settled and established don't ever be moved. 
He then says in closing this letter, verse 13, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Oh, Luke? Luke's here? Yeah, he is. The same one who wrote the gospel, the same one who wrote the book of Acts. This beloved physician is trying to heal you too. So receive him. They greet you in Christian kindness. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. That actually gives us a clue as to how these letters were used in the early church. I mean, you get a letter from an apostle. Oh, yeah, I'm bringing I want a copy for myself. It's like hanging up the proclamation of the world and the family on your on your wall at home. I got we got the letter to the Colossians. Can I make a copy and bring it home? Uh, how about somebody from visiting from across the valley there in Laodicea and they came to church yeah, maybe for a mission farewell, I don't know. But they, they came over to the, the, the Colossae First Ward and they heard this letter and they're like, whoa, that's amazing. Can, can I bring a copy of that letter back home with me to Laodicea and read it among the saints there? And they're like, by all means. And he's like, oh, by the way, he sent us a letter as well. And you should really re read and spread that. So these letters are being circulated throughout the Mediterranean. And people are getting copies and beginning to collect them into compilations. And we're starting to see a New Testament develop, a Christian canon as they're bringing together these letters of Paul. Now, the letter to the Laodiceans, don't you love that one? Isn't that amazing? I'm trying to remember which week we'll study it and come follow me. Oh, yeah. We don't have that one. Bummer. Somehow... It fell through the cracks? Uh, I don't know. Some scholars have said, well, maybe he's referring to the letter to the Ephesians. And yeah, we already have that one. Well, maybe. But maybe not. This could be, just like we saw with Corinthians, like, hey, this is the third time I'm writing you. And you're like, oh, but this is 2 Corinthians. What am I missing? And it's very possible here that we really are missing a letter that belonged in the Christian canon. And I do wish we had an extra week in Come Follow Me to study the letter to the Laodiceans. There'd probably be some things that we would be familiar with already, common threads that Paul keeps bringing up. But I imagine there'd be some struggles that were unique to the Laodicean saints that Paul was addressing directly. And man, I'd, any scrap of scripture, I'd love to have more. He then concludes, verse 17 and 18, and say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. <laughs> Who's Archippus? I don't know. But ugh, right before he closes this letter, Paul just has to throw in one last word of encouragement. Like, hey, if you see that guy around, he's one of my junior companions, he struggles sometimes. Can, can you whip him into shape a little bit? Can you... Remind him to take heed to the ministry. You started strong. Finish strong. Fulfill it. Maybe you're the perfect person to be there among the Colossian saints because they need to be reminded to be settled and established and grounded and rooted as well. You could use the same advice, Archippus. And whoever you are, anybody out there reading it, whether in Colossae or in Laodicea, 
please know that I just want the grace of God to be with you. And I hope you'll be praying for similar blessings for me. Remember my bonds. I am here in prison after all. It's amazing what Paul is doing, even from behind bars. Bond are bound, but the word is not bound. And doing all within his power to spread the gospel wherever it can go. I'm grateful for the advice he's given. And by way of review, just to remind us, to, to nail something hopefully onto the, the wall of our memory, how's this for a few incredible one-liners from the letter to the Colossians? The hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Walk worthy of the Lord, the image of the invisible God. In him should all fullness dwell. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Fill up that which is behind. Knit together in love. Walk ye in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Nailing it to his cross. Set your affection on things above. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Put off the old man and put on the new man. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And that's been Paul's greatest hope from the very beginning. Ever since he saw the light on the road to Damascus, through every missionary journey, through every round of imprisonment, and he had many, he just wanted to perfect people in the gospel. He wanted to help them grow up in God. So he would preach and he'd teach and he would write he would serve and he would suffer. He would set an example, one so worth following. I am grateful for the words of wisdom he gave to the Colossians because they ended up coming unto us. We're still circulating these letters, aren't we? And I pray that they will reach every last one of us until we can become the kinds of saints that Paul is encouraging us to be. We live in a day like the Colossians' day, 
where there are people being battered and bruised and being blown about by every wind of doctrine, factions within the faith and outside influences trying to pull us apart. I am grateful for Paul's incredible counsel. And I pray that we can do a better job of living it ourselves in our day. It's only by doing so, by laying hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its glorious fullness, that we will be able to overcome every wind of doctrine, all the shaking of faith that is taking place around us, so that when all is said and done, we'll be able to be what Paul intended the Colossians to be. Grounded, rooted, established, settled, so that come what may, we cannot be moved.